Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon, a Song of Ice and Fire, episode 67, John in a Dance with Dragons, intro and episode and chapter one. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. You might know me from the internet as Lies and Arbor on Twitter, Tumblr, and liesandarborgold.com. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. You might know me as Gloss Table Girl on Reddit, on the Mace Monthly Podcast. Maybe you know me as Arithmetric over on Twitter. But there's someone else you might know. Our good friend Maester Mary is joining us today to talk about John. Hi, Mary. Hello. You guys might know Maester Mary from YouTube, from Twitter. Uh, she has a great blog, Up From Under Winterfell, on WordPress. You're right. My blog is upfromunderwinterfell.wordpress.com. You can find me intermixing intelligent thoughts and complete and utter shitposting at Twitter, where I am at Maester Mary, display name currently Mary Monster. You can also find me on my YouTube channel, which is up from under Winterfell. Uh, I've got some stuff about Arya on there. I haven't updated in a while. Big mood. But you know, I'm still hanging out. That's life. <laughs> yeah, it is. That's life, man. We uh, we aren't going to ask you when part two of your Jon Snow essay series is coming out. I would never ask you that, but... Uh, for those that have not read it, we did say last week it is required reading, so I don't know why you're listening. Just kidding. You can do whatever you want with your life. But Mary did write a wonderful essay called The Last Temptation of Lord Commander Snow, Part 1, Killing the Boy, on his arc, specifically in A Dance with Dragons. Uh, so that is why we hired her. She is a professional. My people called her people, which is my cat called her. And, no, your cat uh, called my dog. It was a, it was a heated negotiation, you know? <laughs> Trying to get her on here. Almost as heated as Stannis and John in this episode, Ooh, right? Heated, is the heated sexual tension? Yeah. Is it anger? Is it both? We don't know. What uh, What do you think we can expect in part two <laughs> when you do get it grooving and up? If I had my wish, this, episode, this uh, essay would be out before this episode releases. I don't think that's going to happen. But, you know, like we can all dream like... George R. R. Martin dreams about when his books are coming out, so I think it's fine. Uh, so part two is focused on the second half of John's arc in dance, so we're really focusing on letting the wildlings through the wall, on his decision to send a Val to go get Tormund and how that impacts his relationship, and then finally his ultimate decision after the pink letter to go to Winterfell to get fake Arya instead of marching to Hardhome um, with the wildlings. So that's the the events that we'll cover. I, I'm really trying to focus in, in this section on analyzing John as a Byronic hero. George R. R. Martin has called John a brooding Byronic romantic hero and said he considers himself to be a romantic writer. It's really interesting in terms of where I think Jon Snow's arc is going. For example, one description of a Byronic hero is someone proud, cynical, with defiance on his brow and misery in his heart, a scorner of his kind, implacable in revenge, and capable of deep and strong affection. Which I think is like such a good description of John. It's a little bit counterintuitive because we usually think of these heroes as being maybe more dark than John is, but I think 
particularly when you're reading John's arc and dance, you get a different impression the more closely you look at his character and his motivations. That's a lot of what I'll be focusing on in the the second half. Well, I'm really excited when it does come out to read it. We will be sure to talk about it, I'm sure. And I feel like your essay and Eliana's essay should go out sometime. They they totally should. I think my essay has a crush on her essay. Um, (laughs) For sure. (laughs) Would you say that your essay is going to stick I mean, your essay with its pointy end? What the hell, you guys? It's a double entendre. <laughs> man, I only had bionic man jokes I'm- for John, but here we are, you guys. <laughs> we'll, we'll find other opportunities for double entendre, but it's okay. Um, you know, words can be sexy <laughs> too. Words. Yes, um, I think we're really looking forward to that. Our His Dark Materials episode three has just come out in the last week. Uh, If you haven't gotten to listen to it yet, take a gander at that. But next week, we will have episode four out. They did announce that in the U.S., November 4th is going to be our premiere date. We knew it was going to be somewhere between the 4th and like the 28th-ish. So we'll be done with the first book when the show is premiering. I am very excited about that. Me too. I think it'll be good. Me three. I'm excited. Y'all are going to be awesome. (laughs) Thank you. We are plugging through at high speeds. We're getting there. We're getting to getting some juicy stuff. The episode we're about to record. Is yeah, it's very things juicy. Things start, so. start getting real there. Yeah. <sighs> Speaking of other things that get real, terrible at segues. <laughs> the Forgotten Characters of A Song of Ice and Fire, which was suggested to us by, I believe, Shadow Fox over on yes. Patreon, uh, and how they're going to affect The Winds of Winter will be coming out this month. Unfortunately, as you all know... Because we have constantly remembered him and kept him in our hearts, Strong Belboss will not be discussed in this episode. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for taking that one. That felt good. Uh, and neither will Howlin' Reed. No. I know. I know. And that's because he won't be in the books in The Wind's Winter. It'll be in A Dream of Spring, so. So only forgotten characters. Yep. Yes. Yes. Justin Massey. I vote for Justin Massey. I like Justin Massey. He's an interesting one. Is he forgotten? I don't know if I'd say he's forgotten, but maybe. He's interesting. I I love how differently Theon and Asha see him. Yeah. I also love that you just want to like smack him across the face all the time. But also. Smart little mouth on that one. But also. (laughs) No, Eliana. Anyways. Anyways. We will not be releasing an episode next week on September 27th. It's a Friday for A Song of Ice and Fire. We will be returning the week after with Hannah from Game of Owns on for John 2. Uh, without further ado, we're going to get into a very wonky lightning round. We're going to talk about John's arc in Adoada, respectively, A Dance with Dragons. And first, we're going to do a little lightning round because we left John on his last chapter in A Storm of Swords. And we ended A Storm of Swords. However, we still have two chapters left in A Storm of Swords. Sansa 7. Peter Baelish comes on to Sansa in the Godswood and Liza breaks. The betrayals and lies unbundle. Liza poisoned her lord husband on Peter's advisement and she flies out the moon door. Not like with wings. She gets pushed. And then we have the epilogue of A Storm of Swords. And then we have A Feast for Crows. A whole ass book. In which Maester Aemon dies, Sam leaves the wall, and then guess what? We time travel and do that all over (laughs) again. It's like the time warp. Yeah, and so after A Feast for Crows, as Mary said, 
rewind, and here we are. It's a dance with dragons. And now we're getting all the things that we experienced, but from the other side. All these feelings. Now we understand everything about behind the Cold Lord Snow, and we get we get a look at John in A Dance of Dragons. And as we said, Mary has written an awesome essay about the different struggles that John has in A Dance of Dragons. So we're going to let her lead this off. As we start dance, we're thrown back into John as Lord Commander, which is appropriate to the central theme of this book, which is John's leadership. And George R. R. Martin has this like very, very famous quotation about, you know, his take on leadership. And a lot of people focus on uh, George R. R. Martin talking about Aragorn's tax policies. But I think that the real thrust of George R. R. Martin's message comes from this part of the quote, which is, ruling is hard. This was maybe my answer to Tolkien, whom as much as I admire, I do quibble with. The Lord of the Rings had a very medieval philosophy that if the king was a good man, the land would prosper. We look at real history and it's not that simple. It is certainly not that fucking simple for Jon Snow. And this whole book is about the limitations on his power, both internal constraints and external constraints. In the A Storm of Swords introduction, we talked about how the Starks were getting lost in their journey, right? Arya and Sansa and Bran have these new identities, and so does John. And in A Dance with Dragons, John seems to finally have found what he thinks is his place, or could be the place for him. Uh, we get this passage later on in John 1. There were mornings when Jon Snow did not quite believe it himself, when he woke up thinking, surely, this was some mad dream. It's like putting on new clothes, Sam had told him. The fit feels strange at first, but once you've worn them for a while, you get to feeling comfortable. He had his choice made for him at the end of A Storm of Swords. Aemon has told him that the choosing is always hard, but Storm, he got to pass his test because it was chosen for him. Will he pass the next tests in A Dance of Dragons? Because they're numerous. I don't think so, because he dies. It's it's so interesting, because in the books, compared to the show... John faces so many more tests, and each of the tests that he faces are so much more complicated. This chapter opens with hinting at how John has swapped Dala's boy for monster to deceive Stannis. He also has this extended bargaining with Stannis about his military campaign, about putting Stannis's men in castles on the wall. And then later, he borrows money from the Iron Bank to feed the Watch. You have Alice Karstark show up at the wall, and John orchestrates a freaking wedding to wed her to a wildling. He deliberately defies Stannis to send Val, who of course doesn't even exist in the show, to search for Tormund so that he can bring Tormund back to the wall and bargained with Tormund to let the wildlings cross the wall. He also learns that, oh yeah, Mance Raider didn't actually burn. That was Rattleshirt. And John keeps it a secret because Melisandre convinces him to send Mance to Winterfell to rescue a fake version of Arya. Um, and then finally, the, the biggest divergence from the show is that John has to choose between going to the mission at Hardhome and riding to Winterfell to 
avenge Arya when he gets the pink letter. This is like 80% of his arc, and almost all of this complicates his ability to focus on anything, a focus strictly on allying with the wildlings to defend the wall from the others. So it's this extremely complicated morass where John, who's just trying to do a good job, um, do his duty, has all this other crap thrown at him um, that that's distracting him from what we learn he believes is the, the true mission of the Watch to defend the realm from the others. Basically a lot of meta commentary on like corporate structures. <laughs> <laughs> I like how this comes back to this every time. Late stage capitalism. <laughs> well, it's it's funny, right? Like it, that's a joke, but of course, like part of the reason we empathize with John is that, yeah, we know, like we're just trying to do our job, and then all this other bullshit yeah. gets in the way. Um, like, that's super relatable. Yeah. And I think part of what's difficult, right? And we're gonna see it throughout the next few chapters, and we saw it a lot in Storm, right? Is some of the people aren't coming to the watch with the best intentions, with the same intentions as John, but there are many who have been there for a long time and do think that they know what their job is, and they're just trying to do their job, and part of leadership is doing the coalition building, and he's not really doing it. He's doing, he's barreling forward, doing what he thinks is right, and part of that is, as you point out in your essay, he doesn't always share what his actual reasons are for things, what he sees as the guiding morals behind it. And some of those are actually lying with his love for the Stark family and his desire to protect them. Like we saw it in The Clash of Kings, we saw it in Storm of Swords, John thinking of Winterfell when he decides to protect the wall instead of staying with the free folk. Uh, we see it when he we see it tear at him when he chooses to defend the wall because of not wanting to take Winterfell because he doesn't want to have to burn his father's gods. Thankfully, you know, a better job offer came on the table. And we're going to see it again in how John acts as Lord Commander for what is essentially like a house in its own way, but it's not House Stark. He gets chosen. It's not this, you know, he, he points it out to Stannis regarding how hierarchy works amongst the free folk. It doesn't pass through blood. People are chosen which makes his rule a little more tenuous, of course, as as it has been for the past, like, few Lord Commanders, whatever. Uh, but part of what drew him to the Watch, there, there's, like, a very different context, right? Because part of what drew him to the Watch in the first place was his family. He saw his uncle Benjen, he's like, oh, he's found meaning there. That's pretty cool. But now Benjen's missing, and Ned is dead, and Rob is dead, and John doesn't know that, like, Bran and Rickon aren't dead. They're effectively, they kind of are effectively dead in John's story for him, in his characterization. So he's like navigating that relationship being at the wall and with the realm and what feels like a very real and impending danger with a an impending family and he has this new pack, right? In the way that Arya thought she had a new pack. And what he does he's like he sends them all away and next thing you know he's the lone wolf who dies. Yeah, it's like what we see happen with Ned in King's Landing that one by one he sends people from his house away. Finally he's left on the streets with what's barely left of his house. Uh, of his housemen, and he's just bleeding out, right? When he fights with Jamie, and John does the same thing, and he ignores the warning of daggers in the dark, and there they are. Yeah, and something that you pointed out in your essay, Mary, that I thought was really interesting was you said that Sam and Eamon are the two who keep pulling John back into the watch and keep sort of, in a way, writing his motivations or showing him why he's here and he took his oaths and what's at stake. 
But then, you know, yeah, he loses them because he pushes them away and therefore begins to kind of lose his ties to his brotherhood. And in a way, it's very much the same as what we saw in A Storm of Swords when John sent Ghost away and was tempted to join the Free Folk. But now, without without his brothers, he's drawn to his other family. I just am really hit by the tragedy of it when I think about John sending away Sam and, and Eamon, and Eamon in particular, because... It's John's interpretation of Eamon's advice to sort of to kill the boy and let the man be born mm-hmm. that ends up pushing him towards isolation because John doesn't get that he is allowed to have relationships um, and affection for people without that impairing his judgment. He views his relationships with his brothers as a a source of weakness, because that means he won't be able to send them off to die. He represses his feelings for his family because he views them as almost sinful, right? Mm -hmm. You know, he's supposed to accept his new brothers as his family. And it was sinful in the beginning, too. He wasn't allowed to love them because he wasn't one of them. Yeah, it's so sad. (laughs) Whereas... The story asks us many questions about leadership, especially in this book, and a part of what can make someone an effective leader is continuing to have that empathy and those emotions. We see characters who don't have it for the people that they're ruling over, and because of that, they end up making the wrong decisions. And uh, Mary, did you want to go over any of these things that you have like here on the side? One of the things we see in dance is... John recontextualizing his sort of the central conflicts of his arc into leadership. And I think the big conflict that John has is best embodied by the Tully house words, family, duty, honor. Um, and what John is, is trying to do as a leader is figure out how do I reconcile what my duty as a leader is supposed to be with how to treat my own personal honor. You know, how do I keep my promises, but at the same time, do my duty to the realm and the watch. But all the while, this is undermined by the same damn thing that has been undermining John throughout his entire arc, which is his love for his Stark family. Um, and, And that's what's really poignant about him sending Sam away, is that Sam, you know, in Game of Thrones is the relationship he develops that tethers him to the wall and keeps him from running back to Rob. Um, And then again, in in the second chapter of Dance, we'll see John talking to Sam kind of about the letter he ends up sending to Tywin and sort of convincing John, hey, you got to do what's right for the watch, even if it feels wrong in the context of your Stark family. So basically, we're seeing this struggle that's been only interpersonal for John now have this new wrinkle, which is that instead of just having his duty as a man of the Night's Watch, he also has to do his duty as as a leader. Yeah, and it all kind of comes back to John 8 in Game of Thrones with Aemon, right? When Aemon says, what would your father do against against this whole realm? And he says he would do whatever was right, no matter what. And that's what it always comes back to, John, those words of, I would have to do 
what Ned would do. I would do whatever was right, the right thing. Especially to Dance with Dragons with some of these choices that John has to make regarding children and regarding his really close friends and their really, really kind of sympathetic situation they're in. Uh, he, he does what Ned would do. You know, he lies to try to save a baby and uh, it's interesting. It's sad. It reminds you of The Good Place, where The Good Place is right now in season three of every action has all these unintended consequences attached to it and that's what hit, hits John in this book. Yeah, so the good place quotation that that reminds me of that I think is perfectly applicable here is you know every day the world gets a little bit more complicated yeah. and it gets a little bit harder to do the right thing and to be a good person. And I actually like I get teary eyed just thinking about that because that's so what punches you in the gut about John as the leader of the Night's Watch. It just gets more and more complicated. And what's noble about John is that he's still trying to do the right thing. Like even when he fucks up, for the most part, I think kind of until the very end, he's really trying his best. And that's that's deserving of applause, regardless of Whatever shitty things I'll say about John for the next hour. <laughs> Aristotle said, I count him braver who overcomes his desires than him who conquers his enemies, for the hardest victory is over self. And uh, John faces that pretty often in this, right? He, he faces that pretty often. It's the, eternal in, it, it's the eternal internal struggle of humanity, right? The gap between what we should do and what we actually do. But it's, it's interesting you bring up that Aristotle quotation because it makes me think of one of my favorite passages from Kant, which I uh, accidentally, this is a moral philosophy podcast, you guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was thinking about the categorical <laughs> imperative earlier. So. One of the, the more controversial points uh, of Kant, which I think is in the grounding of the metaphysics of morals, um, he talks about the fact that having a good nature doesn't make you a better person than someone who has a bad nature. And and the reason for that is that a truly good person does the right thing for the right reason. If we're altruistic simply because it makes us feel good to be altruistic or you know feel good to do the right thing, that doesn't make us uh, a good person. Only when we do the right thing, when there's a cost, and when it feels bad, are we truly doing something morally significant. It, just on a personal level, I find that to be like extremely gratifying thing for a philosopher mm -hmm. to say, because uh, I think just personally, we're always wrestling with the darker parts of ourselves. Um, and for me, that's a lot of John's appeal as a character. He's he's wrestling with some of his darker impulses um, and is, is still able to overcome them. And John's not doing this for like pats on the back. You know, he's not making choices that make him friends. He's not making choices that make him a hero who gets awards and trophies. There's not going to be some sort of Star Wars parade where Princess Leia hands him the medal at the end of the story. Um, if the show's to be believed, which I mean, it kind of is with the broad strokes, it's a little, to put it bluntly there, if that's the end, if he's closing this loop on Ned, on what Ned had to begin and what, uh, what mercy Ned extended, right, in the situation, 
Uh, John's not going to do anything for the reward. And this is, there's that line later on in A Dance with Dragons, you know, I'm the shield that guards the realms of men, and that must be more than one man's honor. And that's exactly what Kant wrote about there, that it's not about doing things for that trophy. And John certainly doesn't. Um, and that's all he's ever wanted, though, is to get that backpack for someone to say, John, you did a good job, son. And no one's there to do that. And no one has done that. Just a really sad situation for John, especially in A Dance with Dragons. You see it so significantly. And I think that's part of what's really powerful about what we're going to see in this upcoming chapter, right? Because Stannis clearly wants that pat on the back. And mm -hmm. he makes that very explicit to John, whether or not Stannis knows he's doing so. In my opinion, he kind of makes it explicit to everyone a little. I know that there are readers who will disagree, but I think it's absolutely there within the subtext of his dialogue. Whereas John, he, he's doing it, as you all said, because he thinks it's the right thing to do. I think the difficulty is he's barreling forward with all of these things that he believes are the right thing to do. And I think there's another saying that's, you know, you if you go it alone, you can do it faster. But if you do it together, you can go further. And that's, I think, a bit of a struggle for John in that he believes that leadership must be lonely. Mm -hmm. Like a lonely god like Danny feels. Exactly. And I think that's part of what we're seeing juxtaposed in their, in their storylines. And that's the reason their attraction will be so strong when they do meet. And it's sad because that temptation and that fruit of the tree that John has to deal with, when he gets back with his family, if he gets back with Bran and Sansa and Arya eventually, he can't really give himself fully to them. I think him falling into his family and loving them and finally being accepted, it's going to be so hard because it's the one thing he'll probably have to give up. A family that loves him finally. You could see Stannis's temptation as a desire for prestige and recognition. The reason he doesn't get along with Robert and the reason he's got this chip on his shoulder is because, you know, Robert always got all the pat pats on the back and, and, and he didn't, right? Mm -hmm. But John, John's temptation is his love for his family. And it's a family that also kept him on the outside. You know, not, not ever, like, I, I'm not saying Ned didn't, you know, love him or care about him. But it's his family that's still subject to the stigma of bastardry. And so I think it's really telling that when we, we analyze the mistakes that John makes as a leader, they're not born out of a desire for power or prestige. His love for and, and perhaps desire to seek vengeance for his family. Um, and to kind of put this in Eliana's <laughs> maybe terms about a tragic hero, you know, you, you might think of it as his tragic flaw being his love for his family. It's really tricky of George R. R. Martin to paint that as a flaw for John, because it's not something that we conventionally think of as bad. Like, it's good to love your family, right? This lets George kind of hide the darker side consequences of of John's em kind of emotions towards his Stark family. We don't hide the darker side of Lady Stoneheart's vengeance, right? Mm -hmm. But but on some level, John marching to Winterfell to avenge what's happened to a fake version of his sister is really um, born out of perhaps a similar place, right? If less corrupt. And so I think it's a very powerful thing um i think it's 
Brockopolis on Twitter that's, that said this about Daenerys. George R. R. Martin buried the poison in our sympathy. And it's a little different with John, but I, I do think that one of the things George does really well with his characters is that he hides their flaws behind something that we relate to and something that we don't normally think of as being bad. And and I think that's that's true with, with John's love for the Starks. It's really a, a very double-edged sword for him. And I think that's part of what ties his story together with Daenerys. I don't think that, again, wanting a family is necessarily bad, but I think that same desire for a family and for belonging is very much a big driving factor in Daenerys' story as well. And so it's interesting to see how the same the same desire on both in both characters and their loneliness and their styles of leadership that are juxtaposed against one another manifests differently in both of them and what they end up choosing. At the end of the day, John has to turn away from both of these temptations of family. At the very end of the story, John doesn't get to stay with the Starks or with the Targaryens. He doesn't get to be with Danny. Um, he has to reject this very thing that he's wanted, that he's burnt with, just like we talked about in John 12 in A Storm of Swords. You know, he, he knew in his heart of hearts, of course, he's always wanted it. Always. And he has to turn that away and just walk away from it all at the end of the day. And I think that is the true tragedy of that and like what that trait is born here and what it brings and what it ends. It's very sad. And it's a little bit foreshadowed by the way that John's arc ends in dance, right? Which is that he decides to save his family, right? That's the choice he makes. But he doesn't get to go be with them or to save them. And I think there's there's sort of two a kind of two twofold way that that George sort of shows us that in the end, John doesn't get to be with the Starks. You know, one is yeah, he kick. You know, they kill him, he dies. But the other is that there was never an Arya there to begin with. The whole time we're reading John's like agony about his sister, she's never there, and we know it. He's tilting at windmills. The kind of dramatic irony, I think, is meant to en- enhance not only that. You know, Jon Snow knows nothing, but that the things he dreams of, the things that his heart wants, are are an illusion for him. But in in a way, he kind of always knew that to some extent, that desire to protect them, even though he couldn't be with him. And I think that carries throughout a lot of his story, right? Because in A Game of Thrones and in Clash and in Storm, he comes back to the wall because he thinks of what will happen to Winterfell. And again, that's why he chooses the wall instead of going back to Winterfell to burn his father's gods. He's like, I will protect my family, even if it means not being with them. And that's, I think, what you were saying, right? That was for him, in some ways, choosing the right thing. Except for the part where he, like goes against parts of the the Night's Watch vow, but, you know, there there are ways to debate as to whether that was right and whether that was wrong, you know, in terms of sometimes the vows that they make you swear aren't right. He chooses to protect them, even if it means it feels bad and he can't be with them. Robert Frost's home, of course. I mean, the road less traveled is what John takes, and it's not an obvious allusion to the road less traveled, right? You don't think it, but 
John takes the road less traveled. He doesn't take the shortcut to Winterfell. Uh, he's offered everything he ever wants, and he has to turn it down time and time and again. And when he takes the true thing he wants, which is protecting those he loves, he ends up dying for it because it's not in the interests of the wall. So when he comes back, as he eventually likely will, since as we know, he's dead right now, um, if, he, if and when he comes back, he is going to have to change in some regards. It's going to be interesting how he changes and what he will choose from there on out. You know, it's it's interesting that you mentioned the road less traveled. You said one of the quotes that you really like, and this is one of my favorite things John ever says, is, you know, I would do, you know, Ned would do what was right no matter, no matter what, no matter the cost. The response to that is you know, then he is one man in a thousand. And I think that's, that's really significant. Ned and John in their ability to, you know, resist their impulses um, are one, you know, one man in a thousand. And I think something that y'all touched on in your coverage of, of Theon are some of the parallels between Theon and John. And this, this idea that John is one man in a thousand it, it reminds me of the, this quotation George has about who he wants to be. You know, who wouldn't want to be Jon Snow, the brooding, Byronic, romantic hero that all the girls love? But the one that I would fear becoming is Theon. Theon wants to be Jon Snow, but he can't do it. He keeps making the wrong decisions. He keeps giving in to his own selfish, worst impulses. Um, I think that's just such an interesting back note to John's story. We all want to be like John when he's at his best. We want to be able to overcome our selfish impulses. If John's one man in a thousand, you know, aren't most of us more likely to be like Theon? Well, with that, we'll move into our lightning round and get started in A Dance with Dragons. We do have a few chapters to summarize before we land on John 1 and go further into this chapter. In the prologue of A Dance with Dragons, Varamir Sixskins seeks a new skin to slip within. Tyrion won. Illyrio unveils his master plan. A dragon with three heads. Blue eyes, white dragon. Daenerys won. Daenerys begins to lose soldiers to the sons of the harpy and is later presented with her worst fear. A pile of bones, charred, flesh sloughed off of them, belonging to a child. This is just such a downer, y'all. That leads us into John 1 in A Dance with Dragons. As Lord Commander of the Watch, John has to find a way to treat with a king who seems to want more every day, all while combating vivid, unsettling wolf dreams. Later, he is given a cryptic remark from Melisandre, daggers point at him in the dark. Thus begins John 1, with John dreaming from ghost's skin. He hears his packmates calling to him. His black brothers eating a goat. He's eating well, apparently the only one, letting rain wash down a wound that he took from the goat's horn. It Rickon. It's Rickon. He has a sister who's singing to the moon with a hundred small gray wolves singing with her somewhere out there. It's Nymeria! Someone's thinking of her. Someone's thinking of <laughs> That took long enough. The taste of blood was on his tongue, and his ears rang to the song of the hundred cousins. Once they had been six... Five whimpering blind in the snow beside their dead mother, sucking cool milk from her hard, dead nipples, whilst he crawled off alone. Four remained, and one the white wolf could no longer sense. 
Of course, uh, we know the one he can no longer sense, which is his brother, north of the wall, who smells of summer, which is summer. <laughs> on the nose. On That's a little on the snout. Oh, <laughs> on the boop. Boop, boop the snoot. Boop, snoot. I think it's that John begins A Dance with Dragons while he's in Ghost is such a smart bookend, given that his his last spoken words in uh, A Dance. And it's a huge clue that John's soul is going to go into Ghost when he dies. And perhaps even that we'll get a POV chapter that looks kind of like the beginning of, of this one. And And it's also a clue that John seeks out his pack his family through his connection with the direwolves um and this is such an important part of of john's story so you know y'all call this thematic resonance right yes i would call this thematic resonance mary very very good (laughs) it's it's absolutely cushioned with the very mere stuff as well and with Bran throughout A Dance with Dragons, interestingly enough, who's mastering a lot of this fantastical skill, uh, and it's a little different for him, right? He's reaching farther into that fantasy, but uh, there's more and more that it just has made it so apparent. He's definitely going to go into ghosts. And yeah, again, regarding that thematic resonance, as you said, he's seeking out his pack and his family, which is, as we've discussed, a huge conflict for John in this book. But... There are other animals about, too, like a raven flying through the air, calling snow at him. And so John awakens, and it's Mormont's raven, which has been calling from, I guess, the moon and the trees within his dream. And it's time to get up for the day. John throws a pillow at the unrelenting bird, and the pillow bursts as it hits the wall, which is... I mean, he must have thrown that pillow pretty hard, or this pillow was, like, what, shoddily made? I don't know. The, the image of just exploding feathers as John throws it at the raven cracks me up. Like, yeah. it, it's one of John's best supporting characters is Mormont's <laughs> raven. Um, and it's so interesting. You have this prophecy-bearing talking bird, which is super high fantasy, but then George throws a pillow at the mother forker, and it's, like, very relatable and realistic. <laughs> For sure, because, like, the bird is standing in for the alarm clock, and then, as you said, everything explodes, and I can just imagine if this were filmed in this way, in a TV show, John getting up and going, and blowing, like, a strand of hair out of his face, like, ugh, I can't believe that this happened to- yeah, this is the slice of life beginning, right? And, um, but also the bird- is that his Luna to John Sealer Moon? Anyways- (laughs) A few chapters ago in A Storm of Swords, I think it was during the battle, one of the mornings of the battle, he was awakened, and it was basically like an alarm clock moment we talked about. So this happens often for John. I think John's maybe not a morning person, is what we should learn from this. I mean, <laughs> perhaps it's because they're called the fucking Night's Watch, so I don't blame him. Yeah, it's false advertising, honestly. Like, he, at his interview, he was told many different things about the job that are obviously different now, like getting stabbed. On the job, maybe. Uh, Dolores Ed pops in. He offers him breakfast. And John is like, how about some roast raven and a fucking beer? He feels strange about a steward grabbing his food because that was him not too long ago. Ed then tells him what is actually for breakfast. Very good, my lord. Only Hobbs made boiled eggs, black sausage, and apples stewed with prunes. The apples stewed with prunes are excellent, except for the prunes. I won't eat the prunes myself. Well, there was one time when Hob chopped them up with chestnuts and carrots and hid them in a hen. 
Never trust a cook, my lord. They'll prune you when you least expect it. Mm, that's an interesting line. Mm. I think we're going to come back to that towards the end. There's some interesting foreshadowing to talk about, but don't forget it's that. It's me giving side eye to me and Mary uh, just like to three eyebrows. finger hop. Yeah, mm. eyebrows, mm. eyebrows. So this actually sounds like a really good dish. I know. It's also why I made Mary read this passage and I put it in here because <laughs> I think food's important. It does sound really good, honestly, especially the hen. And with that in it, like prune, prune that hen, dude. I'll eat it. Uh, (laughs) John asks Mm. for an update on the stockades because apparently Kingsmen and Queensmen and even some Black Brothers have been trying to bed some of the free folk women that are being kept as prisoners. John had to put guards on them and it's gone better since, but um... This is phrased really interestingly to me. John kind of plays it off like, oh, those... Those men, like, right, and he's not, like, necessarily thinking that, but it, the way that it's phrased, it makes it sound like, oh, the brothers are sneaking out with women who want to sleep with them. But let's be real, not every free folk woman, like, while many of them are brought up to be much stronger because the circumstances call for it, not all of them are spear wives. Right. We see that, right? We have Gilly, literally, here as an example of that. Granted, she grew up in different circumstances, but... Especially if they're prisoners, if they're starving, if they're battle-worn by now. Like, I don't know how many of them are forced or coerced into it. They're prisoners. There's not really great power dynamics at play. So I do... It's good that John puts guards there, but... Yeah, who watches the Watchmen, right? Yeah, exactly. Who watches... And where's the accountability? And right now it's kind of like... Shit's kind of weird at Castle Black. It's like a hostile, awkward work environment going on. And it has entirely to do with Stannis and his presence and his ever-increasing wants and needs. If you give a deer a cookie. He's gonna try to conquer the North. (laughs) (laughs) But first of all, (sighs) more wildlings continue to turn up for refuge, though, including a mother with a daughter and a son dead in her arms. This is so fucking sad. Um, I imagine John recalling this image later as he's berating his brothers for their lack of compassion towards the wildlings. Um, specifically, I think about this passage from John 11. I would sooner have them dead in the ground, said Yarrick, if it please my lord. It does not please me. John's voice was as cold as the wind snapping at their cloaks. There are children in that camp. Hundreds of them, thousands, women as well. John 11. Think about the difference that framing plays and how John and the Watch consider the wildlings. Like, John imagines them as refugees fleeing the others who you know are their common enemy. But Marsh and company see them only as raiders, as invaders. Now, I don't know if George R. R. Martin intended this to be an allegory, but it's very timeless and relevant. Something I was thinking of with this little passage of the woman with the son dead in her arms. This is definitely a Danny parallel to Danny's first chapter ending with the children's bones. It's interesting, too, how they deal with that trauma differently. Yeah. Because I imagine for both of them, these are sort of like kind of formative traumas, you know? Yeah. And it, for him, this furthers what he does, right? And we complain often about how. The closest small folk looks tend to be through Davos, who, you know, having been one, and Brienne and Arya on the ground with the small folk. But I think John's kind of coming pretty close in dance for this reason with the refugees of the free folk. And 
George is kind of hammering home that anti-war message and humanity of taking in people that are on the run from an awful war. I think what's going to matter most for John in the end is that he's choosing the realm and these people, the wildling mother with a dead baby in her arms on the uh, run from the ice ice zombies, which with Danny, it's like she her her child caused this, you know, her her dragon caused this. And there's no changing what her dragons are. They're fire made flesh. They're going to keep doing this. So how could a human care anything for an Iron Throne? When these real horrors are being committed and seen against the helpless and weak. What John's seeing, it reminds me a lot of the Hedge Knight even with, you know, with Dunk, which, why, what am I to them? A knight who remembered his vows. Uh, or when Sir Arlen tells him, a Hedge Knight's the truest of kind of knight. Other knights serve the lords who keep them or from whom they hold their lands, but we serve where we will for men whose causes we believe in. And it's different for the Wall, but it's the same line that he continues on with, that every knight swears to protect the weak and innocent, but we keep the vow best. And the Night's Watch, in a way, are very close to being hedge knights and to remembering those vows, for the most part, of guarding the realm. For sure. And as we're going to see later on in this chapter, I I like that you pulled out this quote because the interesting thing is it's not just we serve where we will for men whose causes will believe it. The point of the wall is you serve where you are, even for men whose causes you don't believe in. Yeah. Because that's that's the duty. But anyway, it's the one of the things that's interesting about this quote from the Hedge Knight is that I I always view it in tandem with with Jamie's like soliloquy about mm. you know so many vows they make you swear and swear, um, no matter what you do you're always forsaking one vow or the other and the forsaken <laughs> not only <laughs> and it's just like not only is that a, a huge through line for John's arc um if you compare it with this um this idea that Dunk is the kind of true knight um it it kind of goes back to what we were starting with at the beginning which is that you know John is the, the kind of the guy that's that's remembering to to protect the the weak and the innocent everyone just has different ideas of innocent because most of the free folk had been in the battle and they ran when the battle broke, only to find, oh shit, we have nowhere to run to except, I guess, that place. All right. And John asks, did you question this mother since, you know, there are still some of those other savage free folk war criminals out there? I, my lord, said Ed, but all she knows is that she run off the battle and hid in the woods after. We filled her full of porridge, sent her to the pens, and burned the babe. Burning dead children had ceased to trouble Jon Snow. Live ones were another matter. Two kings to wake the dragon, the father first and then the son, so both die kings. The word had been murmured by one of the queen's men as Maester Aemon had cleaned his wounds. Jon had tried to dismiss them as his fever talking. Aemon had demurred. There is power in king's blood, the old maester had warned, and better men than Stannis have done worse things than this. The king can be harsh and unforgiving, aye, but a babe still on the breast? Only a monster would give a living child to the flames. Mm. Um, yeah, summer how much? Or even, like, Aemon's writing back and forth with Rhaegar, sending him letters of prophecy? What came of that one? <laughs> well... Not much good. Well, 
a lot of other things. I, I mean, like, this is kind of tinfoily, but, you know, a father and a son, two kings to wake the dragon, reminds me a little of the deaths of Drogo mm-hmm. and Rhaegar, uh, but in reverse. And, and apparently yeah. that worked, everyone. Um, so, step one, acquire dragon eggs. Step two, oh, as in mm-hmm. thinking it's the wrong... I mean, as in there's no, the if John is Azora High, I mean, Aegon died, and Rhaegar died, and John would be... The, the king, but obviously I don't think John will accept accept that. There's this emphasis on the father first and then the son, so both die kings, like y'all are saying. In light of the fact that you know John interprets this as uh, Melisandre's plan to burn Mance and then monster. So if this is actually Melisandre's plan, is it kind of interesting that Melisandre spoils the plan herself by burning Rattleshirt and then sending Mance on a mission for Jon? Um, you know, these are the murmurings that help motivate Jon to send Monster away. But, like, what is Melisandre's actual game if she doesn't really care about M- Mance for the sake of his king's blood? He's not a real king, and maybe she gets that. Or she's playing the long game here, right? She's like, we'll do, well, we can use Mance for many things, I guess, is her hope. She's planning too far into the future in the way that, like, I don't know, Illyrio and Varys did. But, I mean, she can kind of see the future, but not really. And she she also says to Jon, though, in this chapter, like, you know, you might be onto something about this Mance character being needed. Yeah. Do you ever think that they might have called him, like, Manster in the way, you know, we've got nope. Monster here. <laughs> I'm not no. going to even <laughs> dignify you with a response. Moving on. <laughs> the the other thing that gets me about this this passage is is what we were talking about earlier, which is just what are Eamon's thoughts when he says this line? Um, you know, we get from Clytus that he has this aphorism that good men can make bad kings. And I just I wonder if he's talking about good intentions leading to bad outcomes or more about good men succumbing to temptation. I definitely think he's thinking about Summerhall, but I don't know that we know enough about Summerhall or exactly how that stuff goes, how things go down with Rhaegar, um, to guess the lesson that Aemon's taking away from either series of events. Uh, But both of them are, are really relevant to Jon's arc. There's lots of ways that a good man can do a bad thing. Yeah, and it's obviously something that's going to come into play with Stannis, I think, in the future. A little on the nose, right? It's a little blatant foreshadowing that Stannis will probably do something bad and not be as good of a man or a righteous as a man as you think he is. But I do think that it does have to do with Summerhall. I'd say, I think we know enough to know that this likely is wisdom he has gained from other places. Aegon the Unlikely did something that led to big explosions and a ton of his family and friends dying, uh, including Dunk having to go into a burning building to get them out. And we know that it was likely it was prophetic driven, probably from the ghost of Highheart, who was coming to court with Jenny. So it's not too far off to think. I mean, we know that Aegon was one of the best kings, right? He, he had policies he was trying to push that the lords were obviously rejecting. So he wasn't getting very far. But he was the most well-intended of the kings until whatever happened at Summerhall. He was a good man, and 
unfortunately, good men can still lead to ruin. I do think there is an aspect, as you were pointing out, of like the road to hell is paved with good intentions here mm-hmm. with all of that. But I, what I don't understand is... I, I can understand in some ways like the underlying philosophy and, and hypotheticals that come with and some bad men have been good kings, but in the context of the Targaryen dynasty, it doesn't really bear that out, right? We don't really see that from what we have of their kings, because a lot of the kings who were bad men were also bad kings. Like, for the most part, they were. None of them seem to have been good kings. Like, I, I'm gonna just throw, you know, Migor, bad man, bad king. Yeah, there's a pattern. <laughs> Alright. Aegon the Fourth, bad man, bad king. Okay, like, uh, Baylor the Blessed, maybe man, debatable, bad king. <laughs> Aegon the Third, who knows? Alright, D- alright, king. Most Targaryen rulers were bad rulers. Just put that out but there. They, Most. But they they were, like, some of the ones who were, like, better, at least, though, they were, for the most part, at least well-intentioned yes. or trying to be good men. So I just don't understand. I mean, he's clearly, in my opinion, not pulling from recent Westerosi history when he's thinking there. Is this some of that, like, deep... Some, some of, like, the prior to the unification of the seven kingdoms that history that Maester Aemon's talking about because even from some of the other the other countries or nations the other nations that we see in the world of ice and fire uh bloodstone emperor seems like a bad <laughs> man and a bad king i think george is probably sort of like trying and maybe missing on making a point about machiavelli here about rule through fear potentially being effective um uh, and and maybe to some extent we can we can see that at Stannis like is Stannis successful in getting people to bend the knee because he's able to make them fear him rather than to make them love him. So I I don't know if that's what George is going for. The thing that that comes to mind for me, which is something that I disagree with, but I'll state the opinion of people that I disagree with, um, which is that Elio and Linda have said that you know. Tywin is supposed to be an example of like a Machiavellian leader who was effective, but a bad person, right? And I think that's the difference for me. There's a difference to me between effective leader and good king. First of all, one of them is station. The other is the morality between what goodness and effectiveness is. And it comes back to, again, that, that thing that I was saying earlier of like, you know, you can go faster alone, but you go farther together. And I think Tywin was going faster. And in that way, it can be argued he was effective. But as yeah, I, I can see why there's a disagreement there, because I feel the same, that he didn't have sustainability when he was building, you know, his his region. I think that there are some people that that would make the argument that we could remove morality from the picture and just look at whether or not a leader was effective at achieving their goals. And we could say, you know, the say Aegon the Conqueror, for example, like his goal was to conquer Westeros and he was successful in conquering Westeros and he um, was able to make the Seven Kingdoms submit in part because of the burning of Harrenhal and 
who gives a crap about whether he was a good man and had good policies, he achieved his goals. Therefore, he is a good king. I think that's BS. It's it's possible to have a school of thought that says we can determine whether someone is a good leader without looking at whether they're acting morally or not. Yeah, and I agree with that. I just think that Eamon shouldn't have said good case. Because <laughs> yeah. none of them in the history bear out his example. Definitely a pattern. So John reflects on his wolf dreams. They've been getting stronger, and he's starting to remember them now. He knows Greywind is dead, but if his dreams didn't lie, Shaggy Dog and Summer must be alive as well. And uh, What could it mean? What could it mean? What could it mean? He gets dressed, and he sasses the raven some more. He thinks that bird is too clever, which, you know, probably because it's Bran Raven. Uh, he also thinks about how the raven ate Jor's face after he died, though, so that bird's too clever, also maybe not my friend. Foreshadowing? In some ways, it can be seen as very sinister. It's played that way in the death of Weez. But perhaps it's very loving. You know, the raven wanted to make Jorah Mormont part of him. Oh my god. Actually, there is a character in his Dark Materials that has a similar thing with exactly. that. Exactly! So, anyways, um, it's in The Subtle Knife. We don't have Exactly! Money, but... There is a culture. There is a culture that was part of their cannibalism that I think we might end up seeing in Skagos. But anyways, tangents. It's respectful. I'm just, I'm cracking up over here because I keep thinking, I guess Gior's back on the menu, boys. (laughs) Oh my god. John descends a flight of stairs to a desk and some nice chairs, some super lit upholstery. Uh, oak and leather. I was like, oh, okay, they get to work. Oak and leather seat me well. Or else I'm damned and doomed to hell. I don't know. So, damned. Danis is in the King's Tower, and the Lord Commander Tower of, is, of course, burnt down. So John is staying in Donald Noy's very modest rooms behind the armory. The king had presented him a document to look over and sign, sitting under Donald Noy's old silver drinking cup, and pits, bits and pieces of Donald Noy are still scattered around the room. The cup, six pennies and a copper star, a niello brooch with a broken clasp, and a, of course a musty old brocade doublet that bore the stag of Storm's End. Ooh. Oh, Donald. Ooh. John knows his true treasures were his masterpieces in the forge. I love these echoes of Donald Noy still hanging over Danis, over Stannis' story in John's art. Uh, I, I just adore that um, John is also one of his true treasures, one of his masterpieces, because of the influence that Donald Noy had on John and how John thinks. So he'll continue to think about him throughout this book. John's like the one kid he actually got through to. <laughs> He's like, I finally did it. I finally had my million dollar, well, not million dollar baby. What, what is, I don't know, one of those touching movies films breakfast at ruby's finally had my finding finding forester moment there we go oh he can't take the room of technically jared mormont is dad number three right because he comes in i think third and then donald Noy's dad number two right so he takes dad number two's room and in a way that's kind of like he's he's taking on the person that he looked up to in the way that theon does when he takes winterfell he takes ned's quarters but that that all went awry. Um, John also has to like make a decision between like Stannis and the Wall, as we'll see soon. So it is interesting to think. I, I've seen a lot of people speculating recently. How did Donald Noy end up at the Wall? What happened here? So I don't know. It's interesting how John's choice between a Baratheon and the Watch is going to compare. If John puts his seal to this mysterious request from Stannis, he thinks he'd be the Lord Commander that gave away the Wall. He worries what he will be if he refuses Stannis, though. 
Each night he walked atop the wall with Lady Melisandre, and during the days he visited the stockades, picking captives out for the Red Woman to question. He does not like to be balked. Balk. <laughs> this would not be a pleasant morning, John feared. John's thoughts about not wanting to be the Lord Commander who gave away the wall um, reminds me of how later when John lets the wildlings through the wall, he recites the words of his oath and to them he adds, I am the guard who opened the gates and let the foe march through. Um, it's just really interesting how this is something he's resisting right here, giving away the wall, and yet people are going to accuse him, right or wrong. I think Stannis both forces John's hand with respect to the wildlings, but also teaches them uh, him how not to treat them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, is, is he doing this, like, because Stannis you know, wanted him to make peace with the wildlings? Or is he doing it to sort of prove he can do it better? I don't know. It's a good question. Interesting. It is a good question. During that time, he hears Iron Emmet in the armory. Iron Emmet stayed behind at Castle Black to train the men and the new recruits because, I don't know, Alistair Thorne sucks. And he should have been fired a long time ago. Cotter Pike, though, was sad to lose Iron Emmet. John grabs his cloak, noting that the bed where Ghost lay is empty, oh. and then begins to saddle himself with weapons. As he's leaving, the guardsman at the door asks John if he wants a tail, but he declines because he hates having guards. Yeah, maybe you should have used those guards, John. Maybe you should have appreciated them. Just saying. Yep. He'll wind up with a tail eventually, though, when he ends up in Ghost. Am I right? Oh my god, you're fired, right. Mary. <laughs> oh, wow, wow, you fired her for that? How could you let me let her do that? Okay. Well, you're hired again, but I mean, okay. you're fired. You know what I mean? I, I'm it's, on probation. It's a, privilege. it's a privilege, honestly, to get fired on Girls Gone Canon. Uh, really is. A privilege Eliana exercises weekly. I'm the most rewarded person in the world. <laughs> John stops to watch Horse and Hop Robin, whatever the fuck name that is, fight in the yard. <laughs> Horse is a uh, horse is really interesting. I think that should be uh, one of our Patreon tiers as well. Horse the human. <laughs> oh my god, that goes against everything we're for. But it's it's subverting expectations. <laughs> the spectacle. Oh my Bojack god. Ho- Bojack Horseman. Oh, so Hop Robin has a club foot, and he's like afraid of getting hit. Um, John thinks maybe they can make him a steward instead, which I love this because it's very. Sam. Like, it's like he's seeing yeah. Sam all over again. Well fought, John said to Horse. But you drop your shield too low when pressing an attack. You'll want to correct that, or it's like to get you killed. Yes, my lord. I'll keep it higher next time. <laughs> horse pulled Hop Robin to his feet, and the smaller boy made a clumsy bow. I tried to I tried to channel a horse-like voice. I... What? <laughs> nope. Not even gonna touch it. I'm just gonna keep going. Uh, okay. All right. You're very uh, brave. <laughs> I, think it, it, I think it is interesting. We've seen it with Ed earlier and now here with Horse that John has now stopped correcting people calling him a lord. He's like, yeah, I guess so now. He earned it. Inside. Yep. Started from the bottom. Well, he didn't really. He started from, like, I don't know, a little above the bottom. Now he's here. Yeah, I like that uh, this is very much reads as that Sam analog, but also it reminds me of him with Bran. In a little way, um, mm. him telling Bran, you know, you better watch. Dad will know if you don't watch. 
Uh, I think it's very much so him fostering that relationship and also like with Satin, training Satin as well. John's true calling was being a teacher. Being a dad. Now he yeah. has two baby boys, horse and satin. No, he's got all of these children, and some of them are Bowen Marsh, and he's like, I hate my older children. <laughs> I do not want the old pomegranate to be my child. How did he come out of me? Uh, he's a time-traveling fetus. Like, I don't know, like, if, if eating pomegranate seeds gets you, like, trapped in hell, then what happens if you give birth to a pomegranate? Man, I just don't know. Some of the king's men are sparring in the yard, and John notes, actually, it turns out the king's men and the queen's men, they're staying in separate quarters, like an awkward middle school dance, but there were those that were not, those were only the ones who weren't too cold to be outside. Then as John's passing them, some, some asshole, his name's Sir Godfrey Farting, more like Sir Godfrey Farting, calls out to them, boy, you there, boy, and John's like, excuse me, and thus doesn't deign to respond. He's like, it's rude. He's been called worse things, though, since being elected. Which, you know, so he doesn't really humor him. And eventually the guy goes like, Snow, Lord Commander, making fun of him. He's all like, got a fancy sword there, boy. You gotta, you gonna fight me with it? And John knows the guy a little bit now. During the battle, this guy killed a retreating giant. And then John has like a moment of trauma, thinking of Egret and the last of the giants. You know, remembering how Godric killed this retreating giant, pounding him on horseback with a lance. What a good guy. I know. Good guy, God. Truly, oh. truly. Uh, yeah, like, this guy just tries to goad John into sparring. He's like, I promise I'm not gonna hurt you. And this guy's like such a dick. He just keeps trying to goad him. And I, I think that line that John uses his sword when he must is very much Ned-like. Yeah. Right? Like, Ned uses it mostly for ceremony. Not everyone regards him as some great warrior because he killed Arthur Dane, but Ned, Ned wasn't a warrior. And John wasn't either. And I mean, John's been in many fights and battles. He's like, this isn't a fucking game. You think this is yeah. a game? That's John. It's a heavy as the sword, not just the crown. Yeah. John tells him he has a duty, so some other time. And Godry takes that to mean that John's like a pussy-ass weak bitch. And he's like, okay, fine. But everyone, he and he like makes sure everybody knows he's the one that didn't want to fight. <laughs> yeah, I love that he like punctuates it. So annoying. Like, George knew what he was doing writing this dumb fucking guy. So annoying. Like, fuck this guy and his honor code. Um, I think, did George is being really deliberate here? Um, he plays with the idea of dueling and fighting as a problematic way for people to defend their, their personal honor. So, in Dying of the Light, which is George R. R. Martin's first novel... He talks a lot about the relationship of dueling to honor. The characters in the books like use it very much like the Ten Duel Commandments style, like Hamilton Revolutionary Era dueling. Like if there's any slight slight to your honor, then you must sort of fight it out. And I think this this passage where you know he's sort of impinging John's manhood uh, is is an example of John choosing duty over honor. And and I mean honor in that way where it reflects your sort of personal reputation and, and standing. John just simply doesn't think it's important to deal with this, like, flea fart asshole. Uh, and he would much rather do his job to his fucking credit. Regarding that honor, I mean, he's doing his duty and by not 
partaking, he is doing that duty because he knows that he's not going to win regardless because this guy's clearly disrespecting him. And John's seen like this kind of asshole behavior before in people like Joffrey. He's like, even if I win, they're still not going to respect me. This is a waste of my time. I have fucking budgets to be doing. <laughs> he really does, though. John views the wall as he makes his way to the King's Tower, and he's seeing repairs happening. That's another thing that's happening. Not just budgeting, but everything was burnt down during the battle. They have to rebuild, and he thinks, especially before the wildlings attack again. My command, John reflected ruefully, as much a ruin as it is a stronghold. It's a metaphor. And it's such a good one, uh, as much as I think it's important to notice the mistakes that, that John makes. This is such a good place to take stock of what a, like, foobar mess John inherited when he became Lord Commander. Literally, he's been beyond the wall or a fucking captive for most of the time that he was a brother. And so, just like a real-life leader, he gets handed everybody's mistakes. And in this case, it's generations upon generations of mistakes and neglect. And when we are thinking about John's failures um, and the things that he does well, I think it's really important to recognize that the deck was really, really stacked against him from the beginning. Yeah, and it's hard to steer this train that he just was given anywhere but the ground. Stannis' presence is ruining any semblance of normal that he could bring to the wall. And he's trying to build the defenses back up and keep everyone fed, but the winds of winter are not in his favor. Uh, He's met with resistance at like every turn, and saving the watch looks like selling it. Reform is hard when you don't have any resources, right? For sure. Like, you need all to bring all those partners to the table. But I think, you know, I, I like the part where you point out that. The, the status of the wall in the castle is a metaphor for the Night's Watch itself. Because I think that A Song of Ice and Fire uses this very often. You have the the, the sacking of Winterfell happening in Clash Slash Storm and that heralds the, the ter- deterioration, like the low point for House Stark. And towards the end of the series, you know, assuming that King's Landing and the Red Keep, etc. are burned down, that's also very much signaling the end of House Targaryen. So this is a literary device that George uses very often. Stannis's battle standard streams from the King's Tower, where Jon and his colleagues had not long ago battled. Well, Eliana's ideas about kind of the, the metaphors that come through the buildings makes me think about how it's it's interesting that we have this burned out Lord Commander's Tower that John won't stay in, right? So the place John should be is in the next best tower, which is the King's Tower. But what does John do? He abdicates the King's Tower and he lets Stannis stay in it. And then even when Stannis leaves, John doesn't go back to the King's Tower. So I think it's a little bit interesting to think about whether or not it, George is sort of playing with John's reluctancy to be a king um, in a way, in the way that he caters to Stannis by placing him in the King's Tower and then not going and situating himself there after Stannis leaves. Yeah. I think there's an aspect of that and regarding John's leadership, you know, he thought he wanted to be a ranger, but turns out leadership meant starting out as a steward. And I think he sees leadership as being a position of serving 
ideally, the realm, the people that, that he leads in a way, and that's part of the, the I think, emotion behind taking Donald Noy's quarters. That's that's interesting. Um, one of my other favorite fantasy authors, Robin Hobb, there's a culture in her books, and they view um, being a king or queen as being the sacrifice. Uh-huh. And the idea is that if you're sacrificed, you're a servant to the people. Um, that's just sort of interesting to think about if John views his leadership in the same way. And I think he, I think he does. Two Queen's men shiver with their hands in their armpits outside of the tower. And John tells them, you should get some real gloves tomorrow <laughs> because the ones you have are garbage. I love that this whole chapter is John like being like, what is with the people from the South? Have they never been in the cold? Because I am from Michigan originally, as you guys know. So for me, I don't get it. I'm like, what? Don't you put like clothes on before you go in the snow, you idiots? Dude, I got fucking scolded when I was um, in the countryside over in some peninsula island town, right? Over in the UK. And it was like fucking 60 degrees and like rainy and, and wet. And no one like wears huge rain jackets all the time, but they scolded me for not having a sensible jacket. That was the terminology she used. She's like, you don't have a sensible jacket. That's how I know you're not from here. I'm like, it's fucking July slash August. <laughs> but that's how you know. And that's what John's, that's what's happening here. As, as someone that grew up in Arizona and then moved to Boston, I, I empathize with the Southerners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He meets Sam halfway up the steps, and Sam's actually just delivered a letter to Stannis. Stannis does not take this letter well. <laughs> Sam says, I'm not I'm not supposed to talk about it, I'm sorry. And John's like, don't. <laughs> which is very honorable. John wonders which of his father's spannermen denied Stannis this time. Uh, clue, John. It's a ten-year-old Liana Mormont <laughs> that he's thinking about at this moment. So hilarious. <laughs> I don't know if it's because of like Westeros and American Musical from Ice and Firecon <laughs> and uh, our friend Dom who played Stannis and he played Robert, but also Stannis in it. And it's his yelling for Davos that I hear. But uh, Robert is like obviously the equivalent to Fred Flintstone, right? Like that's an obvious parallel to Robert Baratheon. But I feel like the Baratheons all have that hint of like, Ugga ugga caveman, deep down. And I just see Stannis in my head all the time, just shaking his fist and yelling at people, like steam coming from his head. Like Stannis is just standing over his hide map, shaking his fist, asking for a brontosaurus burger. That's, that's it. Yabba dabba duty, Stannis. <laughs> You're hired. You're hired forever. Wait, wait, Mary, what is your sun sign? Yeah, it's important. I'm sorry. I'm a cancer. God damn. Sorry. Damn it. We're <laughs> never going to find one. Yeah. Was- My moon sign's a cancer, but yeah. They chat about Sam's new adventure in archery, and then they part ways. Guards are outside the tower, and they force John to give up his steel because no one can bear arms near the king. Some some base Dothrak shit over here. Melisandre sits near the fire, and Stannis stands at the table Lord Commander Mormont used to sit at. Rude! The Kankmore lambswool breeches and a quilted doublet, yet somehow he looked as stiff and uncomfortable as if he had been clad in plate and mail. His skin was pale leather, his beard cropped so short it might have been painted on. A fringe about his temples was all that remained of his black hair. In his hand was a parchment with a broken seal of dark green wax. 
John kneels to Stannis, and Stannis demands to know who Lyanna Mormont is. Stannis, whomst? Whomst it of? Shaking his fist, exactly. You're shaking your fist. It's perfect. I know. Uh, Mage's youngest daughter, Lyanna, was named for Ned's sister, you know, John's mom, and is about 10 to 12 years old. Stannis, of course, says, no doubt to curry your father's favor, even though that's not really how the North works, but okay. But it is kind of how casting television characters in order to create memes works. Yes, well... (laughs) <laughs> if they wrote a show. It turns out, though, speaking of adaptations and writing things, <laughs> Leona R- Mormont was the one who actually wrote this letter. It's, um, it, Chloe wrote this, so I'm gonna give her the credit, the most motherfucking badass letter ever, and she says, if you don't know it by heart now, you're truly lost. Also, it's like one sentence. Bear Island knows no king, but the king in the north whose name is Stock. I love that uh, Stannis, this is pissing him off so much, right? He's like, this is a 10-year-old girl, and she's scolding her lawful king. And then he's just like, please don't tell anyone. Lord Stannis. He doesn't say please. Stannis wouldn't say please. But I know. he's just like, don't tell anyone. And then he says that Carhold is with him. And that's all the men that need know. He doesn't want his brothers trading tales of how this child spat on him. <laughs> this is such small dick energy, you guys. <laughs> No, he. I mean, Stan, all. First of all, Stannis should just shave off the beard. If everyone thinks it looks drawn on, that's that's the first thing I have to say. So, I want to circle back around to Stannis saying, "Oh, no doubt to curry favor," because that isn't how it works for this group of people, especially the Mormonts. Like the Mormonts aren't trying to garner anything more politically for a Northerner like Mage to name her child after Lyanna. It's not to curry favor. It's to pay due and show respect, uh, especially to someone of the North that the North lost because of war. The Starks garner that respect. We see that with the Wolves later, who Stannis means to recruit per John's suggestion, but he doesn't understand how they live or what makes their motors run. Valiant Ned's precious little girl works because of the just and fair way the Starks have operated and treated their lords. Lyanna's memory is bitter to some like Barbary Dustin, but... Most remembered her favorably as a spirited young woman. Lyanna was this symbol of hope for the Northerners in the war, something to fight for, to bring back home, something that symbolized the rebellion. She symbolized the North's freedom from the tyrannical reign they decided to back Robert to fight. And that was who they were fighting for, to bring back Rickard's vivacious wolf maiden daughter from the dragon, just like they end up fighting to bring home Arya and how they'll end up fighting for Sansa and even Bran and Jon. There's no favor to be curried for the Starks because they're doomed and dead at this point. All the known Starks are, they're gone, right? And yet the Mormons and this 10-year-old girl are writing, they refuse to kneel to anyone but their liege lords, the Starks. You even listen to Wyla later in Davos 3. They killed Lord Eddard and Lady Catelyn and King Rob. He was our king. He was brave and good and the phrase murdered him. If Lord Stannis will avenge him, we should join Lord Stannis. This is what northern children are brought up on in the north. The Starks and the northerners send people south, and they bleed and die for their cause and come back, and some don't. That's what it's about. Damn. This is the essence of North Remembers, and Mm -hmm. I think that's something that Stannis can never appreciate. Um, He doesn't appreciate the style of leadership that you're talking about, And it seems like he is completely ignorant of the Northern history 
um, behind the wolf's den, behind the Manderley's motivations for supporting the Starks. And I think that ignorance, right, that the ignorance of the kind of North remembers ethos is going to come and bite Stannis back in the in the ass. Yeah, there's definitely a lot in this chapter that points to that. It's a combination of that and like, what, Robert went to the North for the first time in like 10 years at the beginning of the series. And that was the first time pretty much anyone of the royal family had gone to the north in in such a long time so of course they don't trust this random ass king who it it seems like a lot of them are asking have you ever been here before (laughs) like do you even go here yeah literally they're they're like how can you rule us if you don't know us and the north remembers is both they remember what the starks did for them in their vows and a lot of it is because the starks remembered them and defended them and their autonomy when a king in the in the Baratheon name, right? Even though we all know he was really a Lannister. Yeah, a plant. Betrayed them. Yeah. A plant. That. <laughs> That's what you said. I like how you laughed. That's my favorite part. That. <laughs> you laughed at your joke. Yeah, well, I'm funny. John thinks of Mage and how her and her eldest daughter rode south to fight and die on Daisy's part with Rob, and how maybe Liana's letter would have had a different tone if John Stark had signed it. But he made his mind up, and there was no use on dwelling on it. Stannis has sent 40 ravens out to Northern Damn. Lords, and he's been met with he silence thus far. The only one he's had luck with was Arnulf Karstark, uncle of the dead Rickard. The Karstarks have no other choice. John might have said. Rickard Karstark had betrayed the direwolf and spilled the blood of lions. The stag was Carhold's only hope. Psych! As we saw in the week chapters before this character read through, this actually isn't true. <laughs> Arnulf Karstark is out here playing with maybe 40 chess. Maybe it's like 1D chess. Who knows? <laughs> right? And the one vassal, it's kind of actually really sad. The one vassal that Sanus is like... He's all the men we need. He's the only one who pledged to me. Is actually trying to betray him. Yeah, this is what gets me. People think Stannis is set up to like sweep the north. And I'm like, but what allies, though? He has none. He's about to be betrayed. Like, yeah. literally with the camp that he has up there. I'm like, fuck. And John tells him, you're not the only king people are, you know, being demanded to kneel to. They have to consider their loyalties. And there are still kings to consider, especially if the aforementioned mage comes to the fold, bringing Rob's will north. I think a lot of people yeah. presume Rob's will is going to solve, or it's going to solve a Stark civil war. But I don't think there's really going to be time for there to be a Stark civil war. Arya doesn't want to rule. Sansa will likely just be happy to be fucking home in Winterfell. <laughs> uh, I think Rob's will will really exist to punch Stannis down over anyone else. I used to think maybe he does lose against the Boltons, but it makes more sense for him to survive that because the bitterness is what comes back later, right? The bitterness of losing uh, and having the bigger lose is like being rejected like he was by his brother, being rejected by the Lords, being rejected by the Northern Lords. When he finally does win and he saves the North and they say, okay, but we don't want you. We have Jon Snow. We have this resurrected guy that we believe in. There's a So Spake Martin from George's live journal, I think it was, from uh, August 6th, 2000, 
And someone asks, I have a question. Since Rob legitimized John and named him heir uh, for Winterfell in the North before the Red Wedding, granted no one knows about this that's alive or free, what does this make John's rejection of Stannis' offer? Does it make it moot later? And George says, Edmure and the Great John are prisoners, but you're forgetting envoys. Howland Reed, Gilbert Glover, Mage Mormont, Jason Malister. They're all alive and free. As to what is and isn't moot, the key point is only a king can legitimize a bastard. But, so which king do the Northerners listen to? At this point, we can agree it probably won't be Stannis. He might win and they'll reject him. Um... And of course, it'll be like Storm's End all over again. I protected for you. I protected you. I killed for you. You reject me? You're righteous king? It's going to be really interesting who the Northerners will follow. I think um, in response to this, thinking about all the different kings that we could swear allegiance to, uh, John has this line that I absolutely love, which is... Fuck you! (laughs) This is bullshit! Um, in times as confused as these, even men of honor must wonder where their duty lies. And this is such a great encapsulation of John's struggles within this whole book. Is in it? It were so. <clears throat> okay, so not only does this reflect what John's state of mind is right now, which is what the fuck am I supposed to do, guys? Like, look at all these different obligations that I have um it it also demonstrates that John is extremely focused on duty right um he's really trying to figure out what what the right thing is to do and I don't think that John is the kind of person who would take Rob's will as um kind of sacrosanct unless there's someone else sort of supporting it or like pushing him to accept that position. Um, So I think it's going to be really interesting to see how this conflict plays out, not only in terms of how it affects Stannis, but in terms of the way that, that John reacts. Yeah. I think, you know, Stannis is pretty fucking lucky that Theon shows up at the end of this book, right. Regarding the Karstarks, but that might be, John's quote-unquote betrayal of him, right, might be one of the ones that hurts him the most. He's like, I thought we were friends. (laughs) And, you know, Stannis is frustrated right now, as he's going to be later on and as he is all the time, pointing (laughs) out that you know, none of these kings have come north to help the Watch like I have. Like, Stannis leans so heavily into this idea that John is indebted to him because he did the right thing. Um, and that plays a really big role in persuading John to help Stannis. Throughout his time at the Wall, John's willing to give Stannis political and eventually military advice. This is going beyond the bounds of you know what John has to do as a leader of the Watch. Is John doing this because he feels a sense of like personal obligation and, and debt to Stannis? I really wonder if a similar dynamic is going to end up being at play with Danny. Um, it certainly feels like there was in, in the show. Danny is a kind of pitch to John. It's like, hey, I'm bringing my dragons here to help you. So you better, you know, scratch my back afterwards and march your troops to help me. Because I put it on the line to come save your butt. Um, 
And and I think it's it's really important about John's character that he recognizes the debt that he owes to Stannis and doesn't just put it aside, but instead kind of views that as a reason to have some level of loyalty to him. And they definitely played it in the show for her, but we'll see that rejection of the Northerners of her as well, likely that we'll see with Stannis first. Uh, John tells him, give the Lord's time, you'll get your answers. And Stannis shakes the letter around and is like, letters like these from a 10-year-old girl? Next time it's going to be a 9-year-old girl. I don't actually know a 9-year-old girl. <laughs> Beth Castle, 6 years old. Wyla Banderley, maybe just a little bit older. 12. <laughs> Wait, no, no, 15? She's going to send right? him a howler. Yeah, she's like 14, yeah. 15. <laughs> I'm going to send him a live journal post. Oh my god, tag that uh, bitch on I hope Twitter. so. At him. I would do that. At him. Yeah, At true. him. <laughs> they rode north with Rob, bled with him, died for him. They have supped on grief and death, and now you come to offer them another serving. Do you blame them if they hang back? Forgive me, your grace, but some will look at you and see only another doomed pretender. Again, that's a telling line. I think that could apply not only to Stannis, but eventually Danny as well. There's a part of me that also kind of wonders, like, what did Stannis write in these letters? <laughs> like, I feel like there might have been a way he could have better appealed to Northern Pride, have been like, hey, you know, I want to work with you the way that I want to be as close to you as King Robert was with Ned, you know, something like that. But he would never, I don't know, something like that that would be make them more inclined to side with him as opposed to like, so I did this thing for you, everyone, bend down. Which I'm pretty ba, sure is ba, what he ba, wrote. Ba, 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 <laughs> da, bend the knee. Yeah. Uh, and, and wait, like Stannis alive, remove it, Baratheon? You think he didn't write an incredibly diplomatic letter, Eliana? I can't believe Stannis, sensitive pants, Baratheon? Oh my god. <laughs> uh, Melisandre reminds Jon that, well, you know what? If Stannis is doomed, so is your whole fucking realm, because he's the one true king of Westeros. Huh, sounds fake. Uh, <laughs> but <damn> okay. <laughs> god damn it. Stannis is amused at John's lack of words. Amused is a word to use, I guess, here for Stannis. <laughs> he says he's, he's like, that's cute. Right? He says, he says John spends his words like golden dragons. He asks him how much gold the watch has, speaking of gold dragons, and John's like, fucking none, dude. And Stannis, yeah, Stannis is like, so you're poor. So you're poor. <laughs> yeah. And John's like, yes, that's like the point of us. Uh, he suggests White Harbor. <laughs> If he wants gold. And Stannis is like, oh, the letter I received from Lord Too Fat to Sit a Horse certainly showed Manderly's age and his weakness. Melisandre wonders if he wants a little wildling wife to appease him. And John's like, um, Manderly's wife is long dead and he's 30 stone and has two grown sons and some grandkids as well, who we'll meet later on in Davos 3. And Val would uh, not have that. She would not marry that man. Not at all. Also, Lord Manderley wants a strategic, a politically strategic marriage. We've seen it yeah. earlier. He'd be like, what the fuck am I going to do with this? <laughs> Stannis is frustrated that John won't give him the answers he wants to hear. God, John. And John's like, a lie, remove it? <laughs> John tells him he's going the wrong way because Val's not really a princess. I've, we've been over this many times. And Mance 
is the one that's gonna bind everyone to the cause, not Val. Stannis is like, alright, sure, I agree. But, like, Vance is an oath-breaker. He can't just, like, I can't just let deserters and oath-breakers run rampant and free breaking rules. Stannis has this great line, Suffer one deserter to live, and you encourage others to desert. No, laws should be made of iron, not pudding. Okay. This quotation is hilarious. Um, because pudding laws, this is just great. Um... But it's also an example of how Stannis is the pure iron. Um, he's literally, you know, comparing his rule to to fucking iron. Um, it's also a really interesting WWND, what would Ned do moment. Um, I think John is... John is kind of immersed in this idea that it would be useful to give mercy to, to Mance. Um, but of course... A Game of Thrones opens with Ned executing a deserter. So, you know, what 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 would Daddy do? Oh, Dad. I mean, that's the interesting Ned question. What would he do if he had more true knowledge of the Cold Ones? And that's what John does, what he thinks Ned would have done with that knowledge. But the most we see in the beginning for Ned, magic-wise, is the dire wolves and Lewin's doubts and Ned's beheading of the deserter. And that that's it. After that, he's too swept up in the politics and it is interesting because later stannis does have mance you know rampant and free he goes to winterfell sure it's a suicide mission pretty much but he goes to save Arya. he does let him free technically even though he's raptured. does stannis know this does stannis know yeah, Melisandre that's the question no not really what? yeah which is fascinating in its own right, but yeah. Either yeah. way, an oathbreaker and deserter is running free right now, so maybe that's an inkling of uh, bad times ahead for Stanny Boy. Oh, Stanny Boy! <laughs> <laughs> we can make good use of him. And Stannis is like, "Yeah, with his king's blood, <laughs> we're gonna burn it. We're gonna burn his son. We all got damn kings." He's going to be the king when he dies. It's going to be great. And Stannis is like, good, because I'm not going to suffer other kings. Because I'm the king. And John's like, what? <laughs> I feel like John is just staring into the camera this whole entire episode. <laughs> yeah, you ask too much, he says. And respect to him for standing up for the watch. But Stannis doesn't agree, of course. He starts to get short. He's like, I asked you to be Lord of Winterfell and Warden of the North. I need these castles. I require these castles. But the Watch has already ceded them the night for it. And Stannis doesn't really appreciate it. He says it's just rats and ruins. And that this costs them nothing is the important key line here. The other forts are better. And Jon says he knows, but this is all they have open. Stannis is mad because these 19 forts are open along the wall and he wants to resettle them. But Jon basically calls him out. He's resettling them with his own knights and lords to be vassals to him, not the Night's Watch. Yeah, and I mean, this is part of that hypocrisy in Stannis, right? Because he's all like, rules are rules, John. Mance is a fucking deserter. Then he's like, but give me those castles. Um, who's going to be Stannis? I, I mean, I can read Stannis. I'm not that interesting, but I'll do it. Perfect. You should be Stannis. Cast. All right. You're hired. <laughs> Kings are expected to be open-handed to their followers. Did Lord Eddard teach his bastard nothing? 
Many of my knights and lords abandoned rich lands and stout castles in the south. Should their loyalty go unrewarded? If your grace wishes to lose all my lord father's bannermen, there is no more certain way than by giving northern halls to southern lords. How could I lose men I do not have? I had hoped to bestow Winterfell on a northman, you may recall, a son of Eddardstock. He threw my offer in his face. Stannis Baratheon with a grievance was like a mastiff with a bone. He gnawed down to splinters. By right, Winterfell should go to my sister, Sansa, damn straight. Lady Lannister, you mean? Are you so eager to see the imp perched on your father's seat? I promise you, that will not happen whilst I live, Lord Snow. Uh, first of all, Tyrion and Jon are friends. No one else <laughs> knows this except for Jon, I guess. But also there's this line, Stannis says, because he loves to neg Jon for reasons I don't really get. He's like, did Lord Eddard teach his bastard nothing? And I'm just like, god damn it, Stannis, like, chill the fuck out. Like, did you teach your bastard shadow babies how to play catch? I mean... <laughs> Maybe you should look after your own fucking bastards first, Stannis, and what they're up to, killing political leaders, before you go around just throwing insults at Jon Snow. Stop just carting your big old shadow dick around, you know what I mean? (laughs) Also, it reminds me of that line he says, how can I lose men I do not have? Um, It reminds me of Sansa, in a way, when she thinks, when I'm queen, I'll make them love me, ruling through love not through fear. He's at the point where he's like, I'm going to scare him into being my friends. And uh, I think it's obvious that's not the right way to rule. A quick thought on Sansa, which is, you know, John says multiple times that Winterfell belongs to Sansa, which is not only foreshadowing of Sansa eventually ruling Winterfell, it, it's also the opposite of what Cat thinks would happen. You know, Cat thinks Sansa would be disinherited because... Um, John would would uh, take Winterfell from her. So this may be like the only instance in the entire books in which a cat is wrong. Um, but but to talk about what's going on with John here, okay. So John is criticizing Stannis for offering castles to Southerners, but like Buddy. How is this different than offering them to wildlings like you're gonna do in a couple chapters? I mean, I get that it's technically different because John makes the wildlings say the words to join the watch. And there's some precedent for wildlings joining the watch. Mance, the stolen child, right? But it still doesn't make sense from a political standpoint. He's, He's criticizing Stannis because of the politics of this move. And he frames a similar challenge later to Stannis with placing wildlings at his own fighting force. And that's that, look, it just is not going to work in terms of your relationship with northerners to give wildlings lands and to give them castles. And I think, unfortunately for John, this is an example of him uh, being very good at giving other people advice and not being very good at taking it himself. Um, I also think that this is kind of the second or third heavy-handed thought in this chapter that makes us wonder if John taking Winterfell would have, from a political standpoint, been a lot better than him becoming Lord Commander. Remember, in the context of Lyanna's letter, he thinks of the response about how it might have been different if it had been signed by John Stark. So I think 
George really has his thumb on the scales here to make the, the cost of John's honor and duty to the watch very high. Yeah, it's what makes that internal battle before his uh, death so tense and inevitable. He's on a very slippery slope. He's doing things a Lord Commander hasn't done or had to do before in this manner. The last king we even hear about visiting the wall was during Jaehaerys and Alysanne's reign, and we know the watch has kind of become a militia joke in Westeros. We see how they're treated and regarded in King's Landing, and while yes, it's admirable Stannis came north, he's been grinding his teeth the entire time, and he's not enthusiastic about anything but his just desserts for helping. I feel like John probably has a ton of remorse at that choice of Winterfell being swept from underneath him, mainly because he knows he could make a difference. Just like in a Game of Thrones when he thinks he could protect the re- how could he protect the realm when he can't even protect his family, and that's echoed again later in this book. He has that power to rally northern lords, the look, the name, the experience. He could cut out this middle man, which is Stannis, uh, the middle manis, because he's a middle brother. Yeah, I got it. But he could cut that out. He could, but his choice has already been made for him. In that he made this choice in book one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And there, I, there is still a part of me, though, and we'll see it, I think, play out a little in wins that thinks it, it would be divided. Some of them would be like, yeah, sweet. Love it. John Stark, all about it. And some of them would be like, so you deserted. <laughs> what about your vows? But, you know, we don't have to deal with that today. John's not gonna. He doesn't press on. He changes the subject. He's heard there's gossip that Stannis, you mean to you mean to give a gift of a castle to a Rattleshirt in the Magnar of Fen? Also, I heard it from Gilly, and Stannis was like, who the fuck is Gilly? <laughs> Rude. An angel, a motherfucking angel, is who Gilly is. I knew that my partner was the one when he was like, Gilly deserves more respect and has to, and like, deserves more, I don't know, something like that. And I was like, yes. Yeah. Gilly's yes. awesome. Stannis is like, Gilly needs to milk her titties more and talk less. Or talk fewer. Uh, oh my god. It's not really the actual quote, but it is to be, basically. Uh, we we call this a calming your tits in my, oh my house, god. by the way. Oh my, god. oh my god. John agrees Castle Black Calm. needs no useless mouths and informs him she'll be going south on the next ship out of Eastwatch. Where people will appreciate her. Yeah, right, where people might appreciate her. Melisandre says it would be cruel to part the prince from his milk brother, Monster. Uh there's a part of me that wonders if someone said the same thing once of John way back in the day to Ned, you know, as he was leaving the Danes and heading north. Oh, of John and his milk sister, Mira Reed? Uh, perhaps, perhaps. It has those vibes and separating the babies, but obviously they went north together, so no worries there, fam. Just saying. Doesn't Edric Dane call them milk brothers? Yeah, he does, because Wyla, he says, was also his milk brother. Yeah. But that means Wyla stayed... In Dorne. Hmm. So how did Jon Snow get north? Interesting. Um, so in between, Jon is thinking, careful now, careful. He tells them of the abomination that Gilly's son is, and Stannis says he'll not be able to do such things here. This is not King's Landing. Leave Gilly alone! He'll find another wet nurse and for now feed the boy goat's milk. He says it's better than whore's milk. Um, 
Leave Gilly alone! Yeah, honestly, Stannis is a real dickbag in this chapter, and usually I'm like, Stannis is a just and righteous man, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, he's a gray moral character, blah, 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 blah. but right now I'm like, holy shit, leave her the fuck alone. Yeah. He's such an asshole, which is why it's important to recognize that that John is pretty justified in setting up the lie that he sets up here. For for John's character, it's important that right now, John is actively setting up the deception that he's going to use for the baby swap with Monster. Later, John is going to conclude that some things are worth more than one man's honor, but the fact that this early in the book, John is already deceiving Stannis for a higher purpose, in this case protecting a child, is is really important to understanding how how John is going to continue to interact with power. This and John's state of mind, I think, are really interesting from a Kantian perspective to go back to the I'm making this a moral philosophy podcast thing. Um, <laughs> so but show John explains why Kant thinks lying is wrong in actually a really pithy way. Um, and that's because if we all lied, then there would be no more truth, only better and better lies. Uh, a lot of simplistic readings of Kant's work say that lying is always morally wrong, no matter what. I don't think that this is the best and most nuanced reading of Kant. Instead, I think a precise reading would say that we're always responsible for the consequences of our lies, even if they're made with a good heart. This nuance is really important for how we understand John's story. Because John internally takes responsibility for his lies we see that he accepts that they harm his honor. Ned does the same thing when he lies. He he broods about it. He accepts that it's a, a kind of bad and destructive thing. The moral background of the A Dance with Dragons and A Song of Ice and Fire universe is going to continue to make John responsible for his lies, even when they're done with a good intention. So, for example... The Watch uncovers John's participation in Melisandre's ruse with Mance. So I, I wonder how he's going to end up being held responsible for this baby swap. There's definitely a lot of theories that it might be Monster who gets sacrificed to the flames in order to resurrect John. Um, and, and even if that's not the case... There's a lot of ways that this particular act could come back to haunt him, even though it's done with good intentions. I think it's it's interesting because engaging in an act of resistance um, right now, John is is arguably acting against an oppressive military force. Like Stannis is trying to be righteous, but a lot of what he does is very dickish and despotic, right? So a philosopher might say that John is doing something super rogatory. He's going beyond either his duties or his his virtues. Um, what he's doing is is thus heroic. It's not ordinary. Uh, if this kind of idea interests people, there's a, a lot of people that have written essays about the idea of how Kant would treat like lying to a Nazi who comes to your door if you're uh, you know, hiding people from the Nazis, right? And 
there's there's a particular author who wrote an, an essay that discusses how people who resisted that the Nazi regime by hiding Jews in their homes actually experienced a lot of depression and guilt afterwards. And sort of the upshot of that observation is that when we do things that are morally challenging, even if they're ultimately right, we very much like Jon Snow experience brooding and regret as a result of them. And perhaps that makes the acts ultimately more heroic. Yeah. I mean, Kant argues like to be, to act morally correct, you have to act out of duty, which is absolutely what John consistently does. And a person has goodwill when they act out of respect for moral law. So what they know is correct and what they feel is correct at their heart of hearts. Um, And there's also something at play with the rhythm of this conversation that I want to point out because obviously George alternates often between like a character's thinking and actions. So like John listened carefully to the words versus this is a thing that I'm thinking, John thought. But here there's no context given, right? He's switching between dialogue chunks with John and Stannis, where John is specifically choosing the words that he's saying and weighing them, which Stannis has pointed out. And then John's actual thoughts with no context no uh, signifiers for any physical feelings, just straight thoughts. Like in between Stannis saying this is what Ned would do and John immediately thinks never. It's declaring to us that the situation that's being showed to us via dialogue is dishonest. And it's conveying that the honest part of the conversation is something that only we, the reader, and John are in, in on. Yeah, I, and I think that's why this is the heart of this chapter, right? Like, because you're seeing all that conflict within John in this conversation. Standis, go ahead. Oh, I just I think that's that's such a good point because there's all this back and forth between John about him choosing his words carefully, um, and this kind of like more witty banter that we we laugh about. But I think in a lot of ways this is the the climax of the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's a climax exactly. of something. <laughs> uh, but, yes. That's what Melisandre said? <laughs> Not to John. <laughs> Stannis tries to bring the conversation back to the forest. Just like Eliana. Tells- <laughs> yep, here I am. I'm, I, am I, am I Stannis? Oh, God. A righteous and no. just woman. Ew. Gross. <laughs> Never. Never, as John thinks inside himself but later on. Anyways, John tells him that the watch is housed and fed men at dire cost to, like, our fucking harvest, and we've clothed you, you raggedy-ass bitches. That should be enough. Stannis is not pleased. I've shared your salt pork and porridge, and you've thrown us some black rags to keep us warm. Rags the wildlings would have taken off your corpses if I had not come north. Sounds like you're projecting, though, Stannis, just a little bit. Uh, John ignores him and goes on, saying he's given him food for the horses, builders to restore the night for, and even given him land and the gift to settle wildlings. Stannis is frustrated, to say the least. John's given him empty <laughs> lands, but he's not giving him the castles he actually wants to reward his bannermen with. John again argues these are the Night's Watch's castles. And Stannis argues the Night's Watch abandoned them, but John cuts him off because they abandoned them to defend the wall. The stones of those forts are mortared with the blood and bones of my brothers, long dead. I cannot give them to you. Cannot or will not. 
the cords in the king's neck stood out sharp as swords. I offered you a name. I have a name, your grace. Snow. Was ever a name more ill-omened? Rude. Stannis touched his sword hilt. Just who do you imagine that you are? The Watcher on the Walls. The sword in the darkness. Don't prate your words at me. Stannis drew the blade that he called Lightbringer. Here is your sword in the darkness. Light rippled up and down the blade, now red, now yellow, now orange, painting the king's face in harsh, bright hues. Even a green boy should be able to see that. Are you blind? First of all, it fascinates me how often Stannis just resorts to trying to neg John to get what he wants. No wonder Renly didn't respect him. Damn. I know, right? He's like, ugh. But it's funny that now that I think about it, that Stannis ends it with, are you blind in bringing out the sword that he calls Lightbringer? <laughs> because in the last book, you know, when we time traveled uh, forward and back to this one, Aemon, who is blind, is the only one who could truly quote unquote see that the sword is not Lightbringer. And that's because he could not see it. Yeah, because he couldn't feel it. Exactly. I love that also Stannis is becoming his sigil here. Light rippled up and down the blade, now red, now yellow, now orange, painting the king's face in harsh, bright hues. Uh, total, you know, metaphor foreshadowing of Stannis, you know, going, consuming, up in flames, taking his whole reign, his legacy, and just burning it down. John asks Stannis to provide him the men. And he would love to give them the castles and provide them with commanders and people to help survive through the winter. He says as graciousness for what the Night's Watch has provided, Stannis can give them men to fill the garrisons. Even raw boys, young, crossbowmen, weak, injured, he'll take anyone. Stannis laughs and says he's bold, saying his men would never take the black. They won't serve under poachers and murderers. John thinks, or bastards, sire. But instead of saying that, he says, what about smugglers? What about smugglers? Am I, am I yeah, supposed to say something? If someone wants to read that I before, know. I have to say something. Okay. Stannis is like, well, I punished Davos for that, so we're even, alright? We Gucci. And then he semi-threatens John, saying that maybe the 999th commander of the Night's Watch might be inspired to give me castles if they see the 998th commander's head on spikes. This is negging like at the next fucking level, Stannis. Alright. And like then he tells him, you're only the Lord Commander because of me. And John's like, no, my brothers chose me. That's like Baelish saying that to Sansa when she finally goes back home. Like, what? Okay. I like that this is a volley back and forth. It's a battle of words and wits, considering that technique George is showing us with the thoughts. And this was a checkmate for John, but then Stan is so righteous, just turns it back on John, and he wins that. Like, got ya, already chopped the fingers off, fit the crime. And it really reminds me of this, like, horrible breakup, because Stannis will not accept that John is dumping him. Oh, you're right. That actually is the language here. Uh, and... Uh... I, I like, you quoted this at the beginning of the episode where John and his thoughts, he's expressing his disbelief of like, yeah, that's right, my brothers chose me, huh? And how he still kind of 
can't really come to grips with it. And Sam, as you as you quoted, likens it to changing clothes, change clothes, and go to quote Jay-Z. And it's interesting in the context of Michael Yaney's con- comment from the other week about John changing his clothes in preparation for meeting the king and likening it to what we discussed in Ned's chapters in A Game of Thrones, the only book that has the Ned chapters to try and fit in at King's Landing. You know, like, Ned never really did fit in. It didn't matter what he fucking wore, right? And this idea of changing clothes, again, it's it's a lot of how the story is communicated to us, especially because in a few moments we're gonna talk about how John is once more, you know, discussing this concept of what it means to be a turncloak. And, and so clothing very much ties in with that characterization, whether or not you feel you fit into it or just performing. But speaking of people thinking John's a turncloak, Alistair Thorne has been complaining about how John was elected and seems to ha- be nursing a grievance, which, surprise, quote goes, the map lay between them like a battleground drenched by the colors of the glowing sword. Or did you want to do That's this? That's fine. Uh, it, it's almost like there's something between them, him and Stannis, like the whole north. <laughs> the what? The whole north. Like The, the, the line is just oh, like yes. the map lays between them. It's like, ah, there must be something between us, Stannis. It's the North. The North is between us. What could it be? (laughs) Slint names John a turncloak, and Thorne has said the blind maester did the count, with Sam, John's best friend, so it's a little suspect. John tells him a turncloak would tell him what he wants to hear, though. Your grace knows that I was fairly chosen. My father always said you were a just man. Just but harsh had been Lord Eddard's exact words, but John didn't think it would be wise to share that. This is one of my favorite passages in this chapter because of this line, a turncloak would tell you what you want to hear and then betray you later. This is exactly what John is doing to Stannis in this passage. He's actively hiding the truth from him and disobeying him. First, he's only giving a partial truth, just but harsh, to curry his favor. Second, he's at this moment proceeding with a plan to swap out Dalla's boy with Monster. Later, he's going to break a promise to Stannis to send Val to get Torment. So when John says these words, he knows he's not acting loyally or truthfully towards Stannis. And, and so do we as the reader. Yeah, we're hearing it in between those words he actually says. And it's so intensely Ned, right down to sending babies and children away to protect them. But it's the truth comforted with a lie, right? John is of my blood. Uh, the non-answers about Ashara Dane. Robert's will. What he writes about Robert's heir. It's trying to stay that moral ground of they themselves being righteous and following the rules of this broken system, yet still honoring their head and heart and families and the people they want to protect and love. How does one play the hero when you're put in circumstances that anyone else would be a villain? How do you stay morally right in a world that fosters that? It's what John and Ned's characters are exploring, how you can stay a good man in this exploitative world of war, sorrow, and intrigue. Yeah. Excuse me while I cry. <laughs> Dad, no. While you're crying, Sanders is like, yeah, but um, Ned would have given me those castles. Never. Yeah, literally, John thinks internally never before he like launches into everything. And John's like, he took an oath. 
his brain in this moment, though, is like, he absolutely would not have done that thing that you're speaking of, but okay. Yeah, John's like, whomst? And and I love that, because in this moment, you know, we were talking... Because in this moment, I was citing earlier, you know, Michael Yaney drawing those connections between John and Ned. And it's happening here again, because Stannis is in this time, as much as he both idolizes and demonizes Robert because he longed for his love. Like, he's misjudging the dead in the same way that Robert does by idealizing them in a way that fits their own fan- his own fantasy of himself and, like, what he wants in the way that Robert did. Because Robert does this when he's telling Ned, oh, Lyanna would have let me compete in the melee, unlike Cersei. And this is the exact same energy with, like, Stannis telling John, yeah, Ned would have given me those castles, but John doesn't have the same relationship with Stannis that Ned has with Robert and therefore can't give him that direct answer that Ned would have, which is that never. And I, and I just love that because, again, it's just that one word and simple protest within John's heart defending his quote-unquote father's honor. John instead dances around it. After all, we, after all, we know from John's earlier chapters, as we've been saying over and over throughout this podcast episode, like Ned would have done what was right, and what Stannis is asking of John right now is not right. And at the end of the day, the wall is John's, not Stannis's. Yeah. It, it does not belong to the realm in that way. It belongs to the realm, and John's defending that yes. I- ideal. But not to the king. Not to Stannis, yes. Not to one man to do with what he pleases yeah and stannis is like all right cool well keep all your stupid shitty broken castles and if at the end of the year (laughs) i don't want them anyway anyway. if they're empty (laughs) at the end of the year i will take them from you like permanently and forcefully and if you give them to my foe i'm gonna cut your head off then too so you should go now and melisandre's like wow that was harsh can i go with john to make sure he doesn't die of hypothermia when he starts crying from how mean you're being to him just kidding, but she does say, can I go with him, ominously, and Stannis is like, whatever, sure, where's Devin? I want eggs and lemon water. I like how at first Stannis is like, why do you need to go with him? He needs. He knows where to go. It's a sex thing, Stannis. I know, there's a part of me that's like, <laughs> is Stannis like, is she gonna bang him? <laughs> also, like, I like how, like, Stannis is like, I guess this is what they mean by the third head of the dragon. Yeah, he's like, hmm, perhaps I too am horned. Oh my god. Anyway. Well, he is. Stag, stag, stag. Um, <laughs> Stannis is just bummed that Melisandre leaves with John because he doesn't want to go stag. So Melisandre tells John he's growing on Stannis, and John's like, yeah, yeah he's only threatened to have me twice today. There are people like that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah speaking of weird sex things, does this mean <laughs> that this is what John and Danny's foreplay is going to yes, be like? Absolutely. I hope you know what, the I'm heading in- really turns me on. I'm actually like kind of into it. I have like, you know, everyone has the different romantic tropes that they like. Part of what I like about the Jamie and Brienne one is it's the rivals turned into like romantic interests. And I think that's what it's going to be with John and Danny and everything is going to go awry. But yes. Well, I, I mean, there, there's a sense in which this is a, is a real thing, which is that Daenerys is going to earn Jon's respect through sure. kind of like her passionate devotion to her claim, to the law, to, to doing the right thing. Yes, yes, that too. Uh, and you know, like that that's that's a foreplay, that's foreplay in and of itself. But it's also, I think, a foreshadowing of what their relationship is, is going to be like. Um, that 
the mutual challenge that they present to each other is is part of why they're attracted to each other. They just have different methods to an extent of getting to the right things, but they're going to be aligned and, and stuff. I mean, if anything, you just have to look at Egret. Mm. There's your foreshadowing for what's going to happen. That fire, uh, that wild quality even, that fire in her eyes. He's going to see that for sure. It's going to be interesting. They can fuck. And then she's gonna die. Yep, just like Egret. And this time, instead of him trying to choose between killing Egret and not killing Egret and having someone else make the choice, it's always been hard. The choosing. It's always been hard. Um, Melisandre says that she'll pray to the Lord of Light about Mance because she thinks John might be onto something when it comes to saving him. When I gaze into the flames, I can see through stone and earth and find the truth within men's souls. I can speak to kings long dead and children not yet born, and watch the years and seasons flicker past until the end of days. This whole passage reminds me a lot of Bran and Bloodraven and their powers. We've obviously talked mm. in the past about that possibility of magic coming from one pool, uh, but that line specifically, I can speak to kings long dead and children not yet born, A, fits in really well with all of these different themes being talked about in this chapter, especially with the baby swap, but... Specifically, it stand out with kind of that revolving discussion of can Bran and Bloodraven interact with the past even when the ink's already dry? Or is it fated for them to interact with the past like they have to make history happen? They're obligated to make the timeline happen. Uh, and that line just really stuck out. That whole passage just really made me think about them. It's it's interesting because Bloodraven gives the, the caution to Bran not to drown in memories and and also tells him that Ned can't can't hear him um in the past but it, it seems like Melisandre represents a different a different philosophy i mean she's looking into the past and the future with the explicit purpose of changing what's going to happen um and and i'm sure that that green seers do that too but I wonder if the rules are different for Melisandre than they are for Bloodraven and Bran. I think, so we see that Bloodraven actually can't, right? He's tried. He cannot interact with the past. And as you said, he warns Bran, don't get lost in the memories. And I think that's going to be part of Bran's growth. Uh, you know, the realization of, as you said, Melisandre has the philosophy of, I have the power and the ability to do this thing and therefore I must use it to chart it towards the course that I think is right. Everyone else's like ideas of what should happen be damned. This is what I think we ought to do. Whereas I think it seems like Bran's storyline might go more towards of a, wow, I really fucked this up. <laughs> meddling with shit in the past, trying to maybe meddle with shit in the future and, and trying to withdraw from that and being more like, I might know it, and I can provide what guidance that I have, but it is not for me to mold the future. Yeah, learning. I think that's super interesting in terms of how that makes me feel about Bran ultimately becoming king, right? If if Bran is less like Melisandre and like less meddlesome and more willing to be respectful of the choice of the people whose lives he's meddling in that makes me feel a lot better about Bran being the king of of Westeros um 
Because if you imagine someone with the philosophy of Melisandre um, being in charge of everything, you know, that seems pretty scary. <laughs> Ultimately, it would be very easy, and this is something that gets explored a little in His Dark Materials, the other series that we're doing, but when you remove free will from the equation, it's easy to try and do things in the way that seems like it should be right, that seems like it should lead to innocence, etc. But the fact of the matter is, humanity is based on this idea of the choosing has always been hard. Bran's storyline is very much wrapped up in John's, as we see, especially within the supernatural element. So I think that the themes that cross between John's storyline should very much echo within Bran's. John, when he offers the wildlings the choice to either join the watch or or not, um, is is espousing that idea of choice instead of simply putting them to the sword and forcing them to take gods in the way that Stannis and Melisandre would. He is valuing their agency and their ability to make decisions. And not assuming that they will behave a certain way just because they have in the past, right? The the Watch's mistake with respect to the Wildlings is to say, well, they've always been my enemies, therefore they are untrustworthy. Um, And sort of John rejects that kind of collective punishment um, and and collective judgment in favor of of privileging choice. Um, And I think that's a huge theme in, in John's arc. It's a big theme in Bran's arc, but it's only kind of beginning to percolate. Yeah, um, going forward. But yeah, and I think Melisandre is a, a great example of sort of um, where Bran could end up or where someone like John could end up if they decide to disregard the importance of people's control over their own lives. They're very much so wrapped up in that idea of the once and the future king. It's interesting because Melisandre seeing Bran and Bloodraven in her fires and seeing them as almost an enemy is something that we'll eventually get to on the podcast, and I think that has a lot to do with it as well. Different morally uh, intended futures, right? Bran has a different future, and what is intended for him is different from what Melisandre is planning for Stannis. And John asks her, you know, are your fires ever wrong? And she says, no, they're never wrong unless I misinterpret it. And I love this line because she says, we priests are mortal and sometimes err, mistaking this must come for this may come. I thought that was great. Yeah, yeah, I I think that's an important understanding. She doesn't get it yet. It's part of, that's part of, I mean, that's part of a Melisandre's character arc, right? Yeah. Eventually she'll find out how wrong she was when it's too late. <laughs> Shit. God damn it. <laughs> Alright, yeah. But until then, John can feel the heat coming off oh. her through her clothes. Hey, when when John comes back from death, do you think he'll be a born-again virgin? <laughs> the sexual tension, y'all. So much. I mean, like, maybe it's like Aphrodite bathing in the sea, but also at the same, same time, why would anyone fucking know. want that? Ugh. They uh they draw attention. They're walking arm in arm out in the yard, and all of the men are watching them. And he thinks, "Oh, there's gonna be whispering tonight." Which again, this does also look suspect. The new super young Lord Commander shacking up with the Mean King and his Fire Witch. Like, is that a threesome? After also giving them the Night Fort, like the the place 
responsible for human sacrifice in history. Suspect. Dude, John, it looks terrible, and you know it looks terrible. Like, maybe do something about it? Like, similarly, later you're going to make Satin, the the former sex worker that you think is pretty, your personal steward. And I'm all about you elevating this person regardless of their background. But John just does not think about the optics of any of that, and whether or not he's doing Satin potentially more harm than than good by putting him in that position. Um, look, John's men all think he's horny as fuck. Like, he slept with you grit. Like, I, I mean, just to think about how things things look, John. Just, I, I beg you. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Everyone thinks he looks super thirsty. <laughs> and he's like, no, I'm fine. The wall's weeping. John asks Egret, not Egret. John asks Melisandre, so do you know when, like, the next bothing attack's gonna be based on your visions? And she's like, no. Doesn't work like that, but I'll look again. And she's like, oh, but I've seen you in the fires. And he's like, uh, rude. She says, no, 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 I'm not gonna burn you. Silly boy. Um, and then she tells him, you know, <laughs> I'm worried. Really? I feel Why like do you make get you that? Uneasy. Where would you get that from? <laughs> <laughs> um, I feel like there's this, there's this, uh, there's this gap between us. There's a wall between us, John. And he's like, yeah, the wall. It's no place God. for a woman. She's like, yeah, I've dreamed, I've dreamed of your wall and and the magic that created it. It was pretty great. We're gonna walk behind. We're gonna walk beneath one of the hinges of the world. Awesome line. Awesome phrase. Man, if Sam were sitting here with John, he would totally be grilling Melisandre on all her cryptic bullshit. If she knows that the lore about the lore that raised the wall, that would be a really good topic of discussion for, you know, the defenders of the wall. Similarly, I would really like to learn more about what Melisandre knows about the making and magic of the wall, maybe later in a Mel POV. Yeah, and that's, of course, why we don't get it, right? <laughs> uh, she tells him not to refuse her friendship as she's seen him, hard-pressed enemies at every side. She asks if he wants her to tell him all of his enemies because he has many. He refuses. There's this line in this passage where um, Melisandre says, Soon enough, you may have grave need of me. And it always reminds me of this line from Romeo and Juliet where Mercutio gets stabbed and he makes a pun on the word grave. Uh, Ask for me tomorrow and you shall find me a grave man. Um, I just think it's it's something that I, I wonder if George is aware of and that there's a little bit of uh, hand tipping and, and intentional foreshadowing in the way that he uses the word grave. Oh, for sure. I mean, George is often saying how Shakespeare's influenced his writing, so... I think that could definitely be something that he's thinking about. It's kind of funny that Melisandre's like, yeah, you gotta keep me close as your friend because you have enemies all around you. As though, like, me being a close ally and friend of yours is not adding to (laughs) people. Excuse me. Is not adding to people being suspicious about you and becoming your enemy? Like, think, think this through, Melisandre. None of these people, none of these people know anything about PR. Anyway... She warns him about, like, you know, all these daggers. We're going to talk about it in a bit. Like, and, and it's just, like, it's so Ned and Littlefinger 
And then Littlefinger's lessons about hidden daggers to Sansa in like a second, like in, in the end of Storm. And it's all here in this place together. Yes. Um, John tells her that he knows all of his enemies and she says, don't be so certain, Jon Snow. I mean, Melisandre can't be fucking certain because she's part of why it's happening. But anyway. The ruby at Melisandre's throat gleamed red. It is not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but those who smile when you are looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. You would do well to keep your wolf close beside you. Ice, I see, and daggers in the dark, blood frozen red and hard and naked steel. It was very cold. It is always cold on the wall. You think so? I know so, my lady. Then you know nothing, Jon Snow. She whispered. What a good end to this chapter. Yeah, no, it's a great chapter. And the end is just like so ominous and so like, and of course, now you go back after having read the series several times, you're like, ah, it was very cold at the time. You're like, oh, that's ominous. Okay, next. You have no clue that John dies at the end of this book. It was very cold. It's been such a long time since I didn't know that John died. <laughs> it has been a while. I know, it's kind of like everyone just feels like he's alive in their heads already. <laughs> it's weird to think, like, right now he's straight up just, like, on ice. No literal pun intended, actually. But I think that this line where Melisandre says, it's not the foes who curse you to your face that you must fear, but the ones who smile when you're looking and sharpen their knives when you turn your back. It's always made me wonder if... Someone other than the three people that stabbed John and the people that are criticizing him um, help plan his his death. I mean, there's lots of potential options. You know, one thing based on this chapter that I think about is three finger top because you know you got to beware of being pruned. Um, yeah. And also, like a cook would sharpen their knives. Like later on, Hobbs says some passive aggressive shit to John. Um, I mean, I'm not I'm not all bought in on that but i think it it would be interesting if we learn in in winds that there's a little bit more going on with john's assassination than meets the eye yeah uh, i'm guessing we'll like we'll have it revealed of how it was planned at some point yeah i mean it, there's definitely a lot more going on i think the idea of it being three finger top is interesting especially with like there's some sinister shit going on with cooks right you got lord manderley and his pies you've got the song of the rat king so uh, i there's a thing with food being tied in with betrayal especially with poison etc so i think um who was it the cantus on reddit had a theory a while ago that it might be satin that's in on um killing john and because he has access to his wine he might be able to drug his wine kind of like lancel does with robert um and that might be the reason that john's not able to grab his sword because he's been drugged um yes hmm that's interesting i recall that theory i I don't know if i like again i like i don't know if i buy it i think there's a lot of different options um but it's interesting to think about yeah yeah well i guess closing thoughts on john one and john in a dance with dragons uh mary in your essay 
you have this one great section that I really like where you basically call out John's hypocrisy that later in dance after John rejects Stannis uh, of his by relying on his duty to uphold his oaths, John will use wildlings to man and defend the castles on the wall. Even though he observes Stannis here granting lands and castles to Rattleshirt and the Magnar of Then would be political folly. Thus, the discussion raises significant questions about his motivations for aiding Stannis by granting him the Night Fort, while simultaneously rejecting the offer of Winterfell and Stannis' plea to grant him more castles on the wall. And I think Jon's hypocrisy here is something that doesn't scream in our faces when you, you don't think about it right away, but when you sit and think about it, you go, huh, yeah, John, this doesn't look good for you either. No, it it doesn't. Like, and there's a lot of different ways to come at the things that John does wrong or reasons to question his motivations. Um, you know, I had a conversation with Jeff, you know, the Brendan Beefish guy, um, <laughs> on Twitter, and he, you know, his idea is like, look, it's John is being tempted by the ability to to play the game of thrones. Um, and I think that's a, that's a really good point. Like Stannis offers John this ability to influence what's going on outside of the wall. But I think that's only the first layer of understanding what's going on with John. Um, and, and the second part is that, yeah, John is, is tempted to intervene and take a part in the wars and the, the wars that are happening in the realms of men. But the reason he's tempted to do so is because of his loyalty to the Starks. The reason that he is treating these things differently is typically, okay. If there's a couple different reasons, like it's, it's either one because he wants to be able to recover Winterfell right? And wants to support Stannis's mission in the North because that is going to let him act in opposition to the Boltons. Or John has another emotional motivation, which I think is his feelings about the Wildlings, his love for Ygritte, and then his friendship with Tormund and Stannis also make him view the Wildlings very differently than, than other people in in the watch. And so I think that that particular set of biases uh, also affects the way that, that John ends up interacting with Stannis. Yeah. I feel like John has a lot to face in this book. Uh, Like you said at the top, Mary, he has all these different tests that he fails throughout the book. And we are excited to cover all of those failures. Well, Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been such a good episode. I'm continuing my Stannis worry watch that Stannis episodes are like seven times as long as normal episodes from now on. It is what it is. It's life. But we couldn't have done it without you to help us because Stannis can get bored when you say the same things every single week together about him. (laughs) We need to mix it up. You know, Stannis has a third. He brought in Melisandre, so that's what we're doing. I'm I'm happy to be part of your three-way. <laughs> Mary Sandra. Yeah. Oh my god. Oh lie, remove it. Um, <laughs> th- 
Thank you again for joining us. Please tell everyone again where they can find your work on the internet. Yes, you can find me on WordPress at upfromunderwinterfell.wordpress.com, on YouTube as upfromunderwinterfell, and on Twitter as at BasterMary, M-E-R-R-Y, like Christmas and The Hobbit. (laughs) Amazing. Thank you again. We can't wait to have you back sometime. This has been a blast. Absolutely. Uh, As always, you can find us on the internet, on social media, at Girls Gone Canon. Send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Discuss the episode. Send us your Girls Gone Canon episode. We're never going to get one. I know. I keep hoping it's going to happen. Y'all, my birthday already passed. So it has to be an episode about the episode. No. It has to be really meta. A podcast about the podcast. I I would enjoy that. (laughs) Or it could be, I don't know. There there are so many ways that it can be done. You know, the choosing has always been hard. And (laughs) just just shoot your shot. Uh, And, you know, whenever Girls Gone Canon episodes come out, whether by other people or by us, I guess. You can subscribe to listen to them on iTunes, on Google Play, on Podbean, where these are all hosted, on Stitcher, on Acast, on Spotify, and also now on Overcast. Yes. You can check us out on Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. We will have a new patron-only episode for our $5 and up patrons coming out this month. It is going to be on Forgotten Characters in the Winds of Winter. Not uh, not including Howland Reed, disallowing Howland Reed. So please tune into that later on this month and make sure you check out last month's mentorship in a Song of Ice and Fire episode. And as always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I've been another one of your hosts, Eliana. Goodbye. Thanks, guys. <laughs>